This program contains mature subject matter. Including maladjusted youth, masochistic hillbillies, and the excitement of the price is right. It may be deemed inappropriate for our younger viewers. Viewer discretion advised. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. <laughs> Choice. I could put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. You maniacs! What is a man? When we are successful, we will it. We had a real chance with this. What you're about to witness is one of the most sinister sounding intros to a trailer to one of the greatest epics ever produced. And there's more, because you are going to see it as well. Yes, it. Yes, it. Perhaps it would be easier to understand if I gave you a tour of the village. Heads high, ponies, marching proud. All together now, every one of you. It's so grand in our town We're always filled with cheer We never have to look around To know that we're all here In our town, in our town We don't have to wait To find out that our destiny Is just to emulate Let's see those big happy smiles Life is a smile in our town Our cutie Welcome to Behind the Schemes, episode 39 for March 5th, 2021. I'm Booberry, and we got Lavish here. How you doing, bud? I'm doing very good. How are you doing, Mr. Booberry? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, any guesses where that first clip there came from there, bud? Well, uh, well let me just wipe this tear from my eye. <laughs> I just, the patriotic uh, singings of the motherland always get me riled up. Uh, that was... Is it ponies? Was it from? Uh, was it from My Little Pony? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out they have an episode where they go to a, a village where 
Because you know all of the the little My Little Ponies, they got the stamp on the on their hind there, on the leg, on their back leg. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, it is April fifth, <laughs> not March fifth. I just time traveled back a month. Um, they it's uh, flying by. They 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 go to this village, and uh, so instead of like all these clouds and lightning bolts and fairy sparkle stamps that they got, instead everyone's got this equal sign, and everyone's just so happy. <laughs> There's no yep. trouble, no fear ever. But it's meant to be a satire, right? I mean, which it's is kind to... of the weird part, yeah. Yeah, because the the My Little Pony show up, and they're like, "What the fuck is this?" Everyone's well, so creepy. I, forgive me, I, I I've never watched My Little Pony, so I'm not familiar with the overall plot line and the and the arc of the show. But uh, it's interesting though that they would introduce that sort of thing. They obviously were inspired by that very same Russian. Uh, patriotic song that kind of they blended in at the end. Yeah. Uh, creepy. But once again, the media showing uh, ideas in a, in a strange way, kind of a weird way. I even have a new ISA for that one. Mm. It, you know, it's amazing. You are 100% wrong. I mean, nothing you've said has been right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kermit. Appreciate that, bud. Oh, Kermit. Uh... <laughs> Uh, sorry, I got distracted by the uh, by our chat room. Speaking of which, uh, if you ever want to come listen to us live, we we broadcast Monday nights at nine thirty Central, ten thirty Eastern. You can go to behindthesgames.com slash the scaly show to, to listen to the actual show and go to the green room. It's a it's the uh, hashtag green room. It's on the IRC zero node. Uh, is it a server? I guess is that the correct word? Uh, I don't know. Uh... I just call it the network, the zero node network, zero node network. Yeah. Um, or you can just go to our website, check out the Kiwi IRC. Um, I did try something a little new. Uh, usually I try and have the tarot card draw happen during this part of the show, but we're trying a new thing with the show notes. You can go to check out our, uh, you can go check out our show notes on Substack. They're going to be linked with the episode from now on. Uh, if you subscribe, they'll show up in your in- inbox, which is pretty amazing. They got all the videos, all the links that we talk about, some pictures. Um, but I decided that maybe during the pre-stream, I'm going to start drawing the tarot card now so that I can go ahead, get it added to the Substack instead of waiting until after the show posts. So everybody so can... is part of the show notes right away. Yeah. Yeah. I Makes think, sense. I think that's uh, is going to be pretty cool. Now, the deck that I pulled, because I pulled a brand new deck again for tonight, um, <laughs> I actually went and grabbed my Lord of the Rings tarot deck. Nice. Perfect. For the theme tonight. Yeah. And it's going to get a little trippier. It's the Ace of Wands, which I want to say this is maybe the third time we've drawn that card here on this show. I'd ha- I have to go back. I'll double check the uh, the show notes from prior shows. But it's in the show notes. Like I said, you can go check it out. It's pretty cool artwork. You know, it's got the the ring being forged in the eye between this uh, sacred circle and this profane square. It's a pretty impressive uh, illustration. And if you're not looking at it and you're just listening to our show, the bottom quote says, The fires of Mount Doom create the master ring. (laughs) According to some website, in the image here, the, the classic image for the Ace of Wands is a hand holding a sprouting wand and extends from a cloud as if to offer a new opportunity or an idea with the potential to grow. So, and it's set in kind of a rich landscape. There's a castle nearby. Uh, it seems to, oh, 
right away. Yeah. I don't know. It seems to be uh, inspiration, uh, new beginnings. Um, and then, of course, if it were upside down, are you taking that into account as well? Do you do you care about whether the card is upside down or not when you draw it? This deck was ordered sequentially when I opened it. So it hadn't been or if it had been shuffled, they um, reordered the cards. So for the time being, I think I'm going to just leave this deck be upright. But I do, depending on which deck, it, if it's something that I'm more familiar with, um, then I mm-hmm. will take into account the reversals. Okay, but for this instance, we will we'll not do that and just assume it's upside, right side up anyway. Nice. Yeah. Nice card. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's fairly a pro-pro. And the other thing that's kind of tripping me out is if you look at the original Raider Weight, Rider Weight illustration, it's this hand passing a, a, a wand, fire, knowledge, wisdom to the the draw or, you know, the person that's the, the cards to. So I, I think that's a fairly appropriate theme, I guess, for tonight, because yeah. we're going some we're going balls deep in some Saturn. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, so last week, just to kind of catch us up where we were, we were discussing the mischief crew and the uh, Rose Garden. I know it's not their name technically, but I'm not going to be able to unsee the Rose Garden. Um, and as we were discussing these things, we kept coming across this very Saturnic, uh, sort of symbology, this sort of hidden sun, this, uh, second sun, this invisible sun, this, uh, dark sun. And I think we've caught ourselves a little thread. Uh, I think we should start pulling at it. What do you think? I absolutely agree. Well, it's interesting. It's always interesting to talk about Saturn, Saturn worship. The, the occult as as it relates to Saturn, because uh, if you know what it is and you know what the the images are, you see it everywhere. Well, lucky for us, I actually got someone here that disagrees. Welcome back. Another top story. Last night, a friend asked me, yo, bro, random question. Breaking news. <laughs> I just want to say random. Uh, sorry. Breaking news. A friend texted me last night. Hey, I got a random question for you just to kind of give you an illustration of where this is going. Has Morg ever mentioned how the elite worship Saturn, like the cult of Saturn and all that? My response to this is simple. No, because they don't. Uh, the idea of Saturn and Mars and Venus in, in this context uh, are archetypes, gods, right? The, the Roman gods uh, you know, of war and love and all these things. So that would just be very confusing, uh, especially right now in the world where people are stupid enough to believe that the, the ruling elite bow down and you know, venerate and uh, ask for blessings from a floating mass of dirt and like rock orbiting uh, our arbitrary sun for, for power or in, something like that. Uh, so no, he hasn't. Uh, and that's why. And that's why. That's fucking hmm. why, dude. Hmm. Untangle that for me a little bit there. Well, obviously, the elites don't worship a giant rock floating in space, even though Saturn technically is a gas giant, but it's okay. <laughs> right. That should be the, the opening statement for, for this episode. They're not literally worshiping the planet Saturn. 
it's uh that's 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 one thing that i've kind of noticed with a lot of these videos is any of the detractors and i guess it's really not all that different from any other series or creator you can find that just sits there and trashes conspiracy theories or uh occultic symbology or just you know, any of this true denying sort of stuff uh <laughs> but this guy he's, he's like no no, no, it's just not a thing. That's ridiculous. Yeah, there is an elite group of people out there. And yeah, they do worship power. And yeah, they they have this nepotism that with this fucking dyna- dynastic sort of quality to it. Um, it's all those things except for there's no Saturn symbology. I think that's my nutshell rap. He, he denies that there's even like sim- sim- symbols that there's even because that's that's a big part of it to deny that that's that they don't even have symbols. Well, I'm kind of, uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, I did kind of cut this one up just because there's a lot of, oh, you got to go. The guy that he's talking about turns out is a whole other fucking rabbit hole. He's a creator named Morg on YouTube. And he, 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 he almost reminds me of like the black magic version of spirit speak. If you ever watched that cartoon series, I have not. Um, so it's essentially just like these 15 spirits. Yeah. It's a metaphysical discussions and these ideas that get animated out. Morg is kind of doing the same thing, except it's just a talking head. Um, and he Hmm. goes through a bunch of, uh, magic sort of stuff, but we'll, uh, we'll listen to the, to the rest of what wrath here has to say. However, Morg has mentioned what the elite actually worship, which is themselves, uh, their power, their money, their greed, their control over humanity and the planet's resources, their own dynastic families, these sorts of things. And I think that's been mentioned a few times. Our greatest enemies understand reality as mental. They would not be worshiping a literal planet. And if they were, they would be too stupid to have any sort of rule over the planet, the, the human race, and they would certainly pose no threat to us. This is not the case. And finally, I just don't trust any man. Hey, man, that's a good mindset. Trust me. I don't know if I have to add anything else to that. Just trust me, okay? I know I'm a you man. You add that his whole face is painted white, and he has like 10 piercings in his face. Well, see, that's why you got to go check out our show notes. The videos are there. <laughs> <laughs> just just as a supplemental image to to this clip. <laughs> I, I mean, I like it. I think the face paint could use a little work. It, it's the, the weird triangles around his face aren't, I don't know, like I want them to be more prominent, maybe less of them. Uh, but I'm not I'm not uh, here to sit and, and critique his style. It's, uh, yeah, because we could do that. We don't have to do that. We don't, but, we don't need to do that. But what we can sit here and do is say, get a fucking mic, bro. <laughs> <laughs> at least at least you can sound like a fucking idiot pretty good uh, okay. that was me i'm sorry I, I i i think that guy's got some preconceived notions and what we're here to do tonight is get some saturn information or just get talking about saturn uh this is the sort of idea that i wrap this episode around was the deceiver or, or 
was the deceiver or the art of the deception the one that deceived? Can't help but shake this feeling and it's one scale of the same ideas on both sides. Two ends, one bad guy. It's not a false god, but the illusion of an evil one. The trouble is, who holds the justice? What would they want you to see? Maybe, which is ba- which is a baby that could be nurtured into a yes. The balance we're told of is the actual illusion, a holy war between archaic good and evil archetypes or a subversive war of consciousness and subconsciousness. Who's really behind the curtain printing the dailies of the villain, uh, painting the dailies of who the villain of the decade is? Now the nonsense, nonsensical mumblings have completed downloading. So I want to sit here and figure out, do communism and the Judaic Islamic Christian based beliefs and religions of old, do they all worship this same deity? Are God and Satan one and the same? And then what is this third player that we have on the scene? Mm. That was, that sounded. <laughs> no, it makes sense. It, in a, if you take a step back and look at it, I'd love to hear the particulars. But when you, when you talk about religion, you talk about the major ideologies, the way that you get people together the reason why we talk about symbols is because that's that's what draws in the big crowds. And when you worship the these old standards, which would be the Saturn and the Sun, etc., and you adopt them into your whatever you're trying to sell, that's how you get global prominence. So it, it'll be interesting to see, yeah, how, how those things tie together in that way. They they are tied together, and not just in that way, but in several ways. That's just one way that these things have a common thread. And we, uh, I, I didn't mean to single out those particular religions because I, I got clips that that hits a huge fucking swath of stuff. You could include um, mythology. You could include all the pantheonic uh, mythologies, of, you know, of antiquity, and include them in that as well. So there, there are many examples. I think. I think the best place to start. Why don't we? Why don't we listen to what Saturn actually has to say to us? think i'd heard this fully through until i uh because it's always been like in documentaries and shit so that's the a noise that saturn makes that some satellite picked up yeah it's uh the rings are actually giving off uh really really low uh i, I think they said it was radio waves um oh. take that out we don't need to get the whole load um, but the first series, very cool. yeah, it's spooky. It's really spooky. I should make that my fucking phone alarm. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> Saturn's calling. <laughs> oh God. And every day you just become less and less you and, and you, you know, you turn into something else because every day you listen to Saturn's hum. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You're listening to radio station Saturn. Mm, radio Saturn. Bringing you the hottest of the lizard fucks. <laughs> All right. So first series Eclipse. It's uh it's the series Hidden Universe. It's ran by NASA. So we know that this is a super reputable uh article of information. When it comes to beautiful planets, Saturn is clearly at the top of the list. It does accessorize better than anything else in the solar system, which is something even Galileo was aware of. Nearly 400 years ago, using his small telescope, he noted Saturn had changing lobes on either side. 
It would be many decades, however, before astronomers began to understand these to be the ring system we know today. You might say we see Saturn as the Lord of the Rings of the Solar System. In that case, astronomers using NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope have just discovered the one ring to rule them all. In a patch of sky pretty far out from Saturn itself, Spitzer detected this telltale band of infrared light. While the image covers only a small area, it reveals a segment of something much bigger, the largest ring ever seen around Saturn or any other planet. How could such a large ring remain a secret for so long? While it is huge, the ring is insubstantial. Its diffuse particles are dark and reflect very little visible light. You could compare it to Tolkien's story of the Lord of the Rings. The elvish script identifying the One Ring of Sauron only becomes visible when it's heated in fire. This largest ring of Saturn was only discovered from the glow of its heat in the infrared. So it was infrared waves that they were able to identify this disk and it's fucking 12 million kilometers wide. <laughs> it's massive. Massive, massive, massive. If we could see an infrared, we could see this thing so easily. It'd be bigger than the moon. Yeah. And uh, this is one of those videos I pulled a couple of stills out just to show the illustrations. And the uh, the second one here is the size of the actual second ring. So it, it's it's really something else. Um, included with it is some old ass uh, ancient symbology of Saturn. And that gets into Galileo, which I think we'll touch on here in a little bit. <clears throat> um, to intersperse these clips, I want to drop a couple of little facts about other prominent times that Saturn was featured in astrology in major happenings holy shit that was one gigantic blast of lightning okay yeah so we got to let people know so you are right now in the middle of a, of a lightning not storm but just a little skirmish yeah you know it's uh getting a little rowdy up there you know i, I don't know if the mead is flowing or if there's maybe some verbal spat going down but it's pretty cool i was actually looking at a bolt i was trying to get the fucking um, burst shot thing to go on my phone, but it just kept doing a re video record. And I couldn't do it right. Mm. Yeah. Um, by Jove. Yeah. We have to stop immediately. Do you know why? Cause I fucked up and I forgot something. Well, uh Oh, would you, would you forget? We have two fucking freaks of hazard tonight. Oh my good golly gush. We have, I, I hope I didn't see a note or no one told me <clears throat> I got to figure out the PayPal. Something's wrong. Um, as far as adding notes to the donations, but I'll get it. I'll get it sussed out. Um, but we have Quirkus coming in with thirteen sixty nine, and Sir Seat Sitter uh, with thirty bucks, um, and that is much appreciated, y'all. All right, thank you guys. Uh, just a quick aside: I did take the previous donations up until Sir Seat Sitters today, and I sent them into a, a GoFundMe. Um, so that, that, that really, uh, meant a lot to me for y'all to contribute to something that, you know, just totally came out of nowhere, but it's really good stuff. And I appreciate it. Y'all. Yeah. Um, Quirkus is 1369. That's a good, that's a good number. Let's, uh, let's, let's play, 69. let's play uh Quirkus a little ISO that I got for her. How's that supposed to work? Well, we'll get you a job at Kmart and you can go part-time to city college to learn a trade. You'll be able to shop at the Galleria, watch cable TV, and make car payments. And then, of course, there's income tax to pay. 
I'll tell you, I will take nightlife anytime. <laughs> I mean, I love the nightlife. I love the boogie. I love the soul. Yeah. And for sure, seat sitter. <laughs> the numbers are going up. The numbers are going up. <laughs> The numbers are going up. Wear your mask. Wear your mask. Wear your mask. Wear your mask. Grandma killer. Grandma killer. Grandma killer. Grandma killer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I kind of like that. Uh, maybe finding an ISO for everyone that, that donates and kind of get them uh, something something going, you know, for supporting the show. We, we really appreciate that. It's value a nice for value. personal touch. Nice personal touch. Yep. Do a commercial. You're off the artistic roll call. Every word you say is suspect. You're a corporate whore. And uh, end of story. End of story. That's it. Value for value. The only way to go. Well, uh, we'll just blow through some of these quick, uh, important historical moments with Saturn. Um, nine, uh, eighteen eighty-two. Robert Koch isolates bacteria responsible for tuberculosis. 1899 Bayer Company registers aspirin as a trademark. 1952, the first open heart surgery is performed. 1953, the first mechanical heart and blood purifier is used for 29 minutes during a surgery. And in 1953, Jonas Salk announces the first polio vaccine. And Francis Crick and James D. Watson published on the molecular structure of nucleic acids, describing the double helix structure of DNA. That Double one, helix. yeah, that one's a little spooky. If uh, a good, well, I should say the fucking thing to listen is uh, episode sixty-one of Mo Facts. I, I believe it was Mark My Words, and holy shit, like I, I already knew what I was wanting to talk about before I listened to Mo, and listening to Mo just really knocked a lot of uh, everything here in, into place in, in a in a weird way. I, I think I've gotten through half that episode. What is it about specifically? What's the thesis of, of that one? It's uh, I don't want to get too spoil spoilery, but he is going over uh, one of the main talking points is the uh, role that Tyler Perry has been uh, utilized in the rollout of the vaccines. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah, yeah. That is interlaced with what some of the capabilities of uh, the mRNA technology is is capable of, um, and then it kind of ends on what the results of uh, you know what they what they yeah. want to happen. So I actually <laughs> I actually pulled a, another ISO from that. This is in fact a great time to be a podcaster. I think that's a good one. <laughs> Amen, Adam. Amen. Uh, let's see. Oh, here we go. Here's one for DeLorean, uh, Dame DeLorean. March 4th, 1933, Franklin Roosevelt was sworn in as president. Oh, man. And he hit the ground running, too. Oh. I think he had gold outlawed <laughs> within a couple months. <laughs> he was a son of a bitch. Oh, my God. I didn't even realize what I just said. Please forgive me. <laughs> I had no idea. He, he hit the ground rolling. I'm so sorry. I did not mean to offend his ghost. That was my bad. Uh, let's see. 1961, Nixon le uh, left office. And when, uh, no, I'm sorry. When, uh, wait, hold on. When January 20th, 1961, when Vice President Richard Nixon left office, Saturn was conjoined um with his natal son and when he resigned as president in 74 it was at the exact same position hmm. um some of those links they have some pretty crazy fucking star charts I, i'm not very good at reading them but they're worth checking out and uh there's loads and loads of fucking historical events that that overlap with this 
But uh, we'll, we'll get back to this Lord of the Rings. This is part two. To understand this ring's origin, we have to look beyond Saturn's family of inner rings and moons to its swarm of outer moons. The largest of these is known as Phoebe. The new ring appears to line up with Phoebe's orbit, which is significantly offset from Saturn's ring plane. Phoebe is 220 kilometers across, about 1 15th the size of our own moon. Its surface is heavily cratered and rather dark in tone. Astronomers theorize that ongoing impacts not only leave craters, but kick off enough dust to create and maintain this outer ring. These dark dust particles reflect very little of the sun's visible light, but as they absorb it, they heat up slightly. This makes them visible to Spitzer's infrared sensors, which captured an edge-on view of the ring. So what prompted Dr. Anne Verbiser and her team to search for an unseen ring here in the first place? The answer can be found elsewhere in the Saturnian system. Invisible, hidden, come on, come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was another one in here that was good. Uh, It was about the Jetsons. Oh, when Saturn orbited through Aquarius back in 1962, the Jetsons premiered ABC's first animated color TV series about a family living in the space age. Hmm. How often is it couldn't be a coincidence, could it? All these times? Uh, I think if I remember correctly, it was every 20 years it makes its rotation. Hmm. Uh, Because part of my Saturn return last year, I thought was last or it's every 29 years. I'd have to go back. It's in it's in one of these articles. I don't think I pulled it out specifically. Do you know when the the next time it's going to happen is? What year? Probably what 2040, I'd have to guess. 40. Uh, we'll be here anytime. Be here before you know it. Uh, and we'll finish up Lord of the Rings Part 3. The One Ring of Sauron was inherently evil and corrupted all those who touched it. While no one would claim this new ring of Saturn is evil, you could say that its darkness appears to have corrupted Saturn's mysterious moon, Iapetus. Over 200 years ago, astronomer Giovanni Cassini deduced through careful observation that Iapetus had a strangely dark side. Today, NASA's Cassini mission has shown us in extraordinary detail how almost half of this icy white moon is covered by an unusual dark feature. The same side of Iapetus always faces Saturn, and its dark side faces into the direction of its orbit. This led astronomers to theorize that it must be sweeping up some dark material as it orbits Saturn. It was this material Dr. Verbiser and her team sought when they found the ring. It's amazing just how big this ring is. Starting 6 million kilometers from Saturn, it extends outwards about 12 million more kilometers. If you could observe it with infrared vision, it would be huge, about as wide as two full moons. To paraphrase Tolkien, it's truly one ring to dwarf them all, and its darkness solves a 200-year-old mystery about the moon Iapetus. For the Spitzer Science Center, I'm Dr. Robert Hurt, reminding you there's a hidden universe just waiting to be discovered. That's what that first picture is. After this video, this is called the uh, One Ring of Saturn Hidden Universe. 
Um, but if you look at the fucking video, they've got it displayed out. They got a red full moon and right beside it, it looks like a straight line, but it's twice as wide as that full moon is. And that's the size of this ring, um, mm. which is, the, I think I wanted to start primarily with the, some of the physical characteristics of the planet. Uh, Cause I didn't have any clue about this, um, this massive one. I didn't know about this, this thing, whatever this is. They never really specify what this dark material is. It's, uh, oh, I guess you're right, because it's, it's pulverized mm-hmm. pieces from this moon. Yeah, it's um, just dust, space dust, basically. I, but it's somehow, like, collected, it's coagulated in this form. It's probably just after billions of years spinning around something, spinning around Saturn, it just finally gets leveled out. Space it's, coagulation, holy shit. It's, it's it's so weird. Gravity's so fucking awesome. Um, yeah, it's it's so strange too. It, it can only be seen with infrared light, so it must have some sort of radioactivity or some sort of uh, well, like that that radio that you, that you were just showing earlier. Is, is that part of that? Is that part of the planet itself? What is emitting that noise? It is. Uh, is it all of it combined? Yeah, I can hear the fucking lightning through my shit. I got to get a better ground. <laughs> you got to get a nature mic, man. Everybody wants to hear that. Everybody wants to hear the lightning. Um, beautiful. I want to say the radio frequencies were coming, or the infrared was coming from one of the rings. Mm-hmm. And it would make sense that if this one is getting heated up and it starts to glow and it starts to emit this radio wave. Um, I'm fairly certain it's that one mm. that, that that's doing the, the, the little sing song. Uh, one of the mm. articles I did have referenced uh, Saturn enters Aquarius because we're in the new age, December 17th, 2020. And we'll stay in Aquarius until March 23rd. Some so of the, we just came out of it. it no, two weeks ago. We just went into it. Oh, we just went into it. Yeah, we just we just entered and uh, it'll stay there until March 2023 of next year. Yeah. Oh, well, two years. Two years. Okay. I'm not too familiar with all this, all this sort of astrological, uh, the movement of bodies uh, in this in this format. Like how long Saturn's in this and that. <laughs> it's something that's definitely going to require more looking into because I, I just don't want to spout off the wrong um, the wrong information. I know it's got something to do with the influence of the planets and the influence of the Zodiac and what, what, what each season means. Um, I'm just not very good with it, but I will read some of the, uh, some of the things that they highlight with this new coming of age, a shift from capitalism to human capital Capricorn and the earth element value quote capitalism while Aquarius and the air element value quote the human capital. The world will start valuing more the human capital at the expense of material aspects of production. A shift from top-down hierarchies to bottom-up innovation. Both Capricorn and Aquarius are ruled by Saturn, so both signs are concerned with bringing order into chaos. But while with Capricorn, order comes from top-down from the leader, with Aquarius, progress comes uh, bottom-up from the individual. So revolution, essentially. And there's some nice little fucking Crowley uh, as above, so below in there. That top-down, bottom-up. Yeah, it's all the same, right? Whether it comes from the top or the bottom. <laughs> uh, a shift from big cities to smart cities and small communities. 
And this one, it is not excluded that the role of a big city, but the big metropolis will change and we may slowly return to smaller communities where we can better take care of each other. Uh, A shift from duty to true altruism, a shift from taxpayer status to civil responsibility, acknowledging the value of humanity. Um, And every single one of us will contribute to a better world by helping ourselves, our fellow humans, and other living beings from a place of love and support. There's a lot of very sort of social connotations in some of the literature that I found, if if you know what I mean. Yeah, you never know. Who's writing all this stuff is that, but it's just so interesting. You always wonder if, if these things are just basically trying to explain the human condition that we go back and forth between these two sorts of modes or all these modes. Well, that that's one of the things that I want to explore is Christian or I'm just going to use Christianity by default. That's what I came up with. Sure. Um, this, Western civilization. Yeah. Or West, Western religion. West Civ versus Calm. Are they both a religion? We know one of them is for sure. And I'm going to try and and not prove, but make a case that communism is a religion along with science to some degree. Uh, but before we can do any of that, I got another one. This is Saturn's 60 symbols, part one. I mean, it's kind of interesting, and, and there's a theory as to where it comes from, that it's probably um, this one, of the, one of the moons of Saturn shares the same orbit as this enormous ring, a uh, moon called Phoebe. Um, and it's thought probably this uh, new ring is material that was ejected from Phoebe when something smashed into Phoebe. And in fact, if you just add up the total amount of stuff that has to be in this ring to give you some idea of how diffusive it is, even though it's spread out over this enormous region of space, it's actually only about sort of one crater's worth of dust, one crater's worth of bits and pieces. Um, so it's probably something smashed into Phoebe, threw a, dug out a new crater, and the material that was ejected in that crater is now forming this ring. Saturn's entire ring and satellite system is probably one of the most interesting parts of the solar system. Uh, there's, there's lots of stuff going on uh, out there. Saturn's got over 60 moons or little moonlets, as well as this big, large uh, ring system. And if you were to actually go and look at the rings in detail, you'd find that they're, not, they're certainly not a solid object. They're made up of lots and lots of little particles, ranging from microscopic little dust particles up to big, boulder-sized chunks of rock, and, and mostly ice, really. And they line up in a really flat circle around the planet. So to scale, they actually are as thin as a piece of paper. So it's amazingly thin, even though they go very, very far away from the planet. And the rings change their angle to us. So sometimes we see the rings as this big, brilliant circle around the planet, and sometimes they're actually angled flat, as they just were at the beginning of this year. So sometimes you can't see it, which confused Galileo to no end when he first (laughs) found these 400 years ago. And again, I got some photos of like... uh of of this video and they they got some pretty pretty fucking good pictures of saturn um Mm -hmm. like ones from far off telescopes some with the eclipse and uh other ones with the full-on backlit of the sun um but yeah that's 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 the part that kind of blew my mind is this shit to scale and i don't know what they mean by to scale like to scale of what um but this shit is reportedly paper thin Mm -hmm. like a radar dish (laughs) That's where I went with that Impossibly one. thin, and it stretches out ridiculously far, and it's totally uniform, and it's freakish. And it I came... like how she brought up... Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, you, 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 no, you go. Oh, okay. Uh, she brought up a funny point about how it puzzled Galileo, and one of the things you might get into later, uh, or not, I don't know, but it, the, the ancients 
and their knowledge of Saturn, of the actual physical properties of Saturn, are sort of like a moniker in human development. And they say that, you know, beyond a certain time, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, you know, nobody knew that what Saturn looked like, that Saturn had rings or, or whatever. You know, maybe they knew that Saturn existed and it was part of the heavenly bodies, but they didn't know that it had rings because they didn't have the you know good enough telescopic technology or whatever. But if they did, you know, that's just another one of the things that they say that people couldn't do, which in all actuality, they probably did at some point, you know. All you got to do is make a powerful enough telescope, and that's not ludicrously difficult to manage in the span of 100,000 years, right, to to develop something like that. I agree. And you got to think of uh, how clear the air quality must have been in some parts back then. Sure. And and no light pollution. That's yeah, that that's maybe more so what I meant. It's the light pollution. Well, both everything, all the above. You just have this this perfect view of the night sky. And then the point I'm trying to make is that it's another way that that uh, modern scientists kind of poo poo the idea of there being ancient civilizations beyond, you know, say four or five thousand years ago. They say, oh, you know, those people are too dumb to know that Saturn had rings. But Galileo, you know, he figured it out. He saw something. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he found it out not, you know, in a very astrological way where, like, they're just, there's, there's uh, anomalies that he can't quite explain. He doesn't necessarily know that they're rings. He just knows that whatever he's looking at is strange and it doesn't make any sense. There's nothing else like it. Yeah, and one of the other pictures uh, from just a little little bit ago, there's a series of illustrations of, different symbols of Saturn, like the the different ways the light would reflect off the rings and it would make all these crazy-ass fucking shapes in the sky. Mm. Um, some of them look like eyes. Some of them look like the Verica Pisces. Uh, you get some some bull action in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was from the uh, LOTR video. Uh, we got a couple of other little fast, uh, quick fun facts for for uh, Saturn, and then we'll get into some more esoteric stuff. The really, really spectacular images of Saturn have come from the hugely successful Cassini mission. So this one's one of my favorites. So what you're looking at is just a portion of Saturn's ring system, and you can start to see really how thin this ring system is, and it's curving around here. But what's neat about this picture, in my mind, is that in one snapshot you get a view of some of the other interesting parts of of the the Saturn ring system. So one is this tiny little moon here. Um, I can't remember the name of it. (laughs) Um, But you can see that it's really quite small. It's really quite irregular. But behind is the glory of Saturn's moon system, which is Titan. And Titan is, again, one of the most interesting parts of the solar system. You see that this picture here is hazy. And it's hazy because Titan actually has an atmosphere and not just a little thin atmosphere, a real proper thick atmosphere made mostly out of nitrogen and other gases like that. So it makes it one of the prime spots in the solar system where we'd love to go and look for signs of really primitive life. So hitching a ride on Cassini right at the beginning of the missions was a separate probe called Huygens. That probe was launched into the atmosphere Um, sent down information as it streamed down through the atmosphere and was designed to actually land with a thud on the surface of Titan and send back information about what it landed in. So it was completely unclear whether it would land in an ocean and float around or whether it would land on solid ground. 
Uh, it turns out it landed on something I think was best described as creme brulee, so something a bit, um, bit with a bit of give in it, but with a bit of a crust as well. Mm. These moons are fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. And there's hundreds of them. Very strange. And they got, you know, they kind of got that, that whole jitty, oh, we got an alien life. Get excited. I mean, that would be cool. I don't think we're going to find extraterrestrial life in this universe, but that's just my humble opinion. Yeah. The, the, um, the conditions for Earth are just so precise, <laughs> which is another kind of like hint that maybe there's something else going on. Just the size of the Earth in proportion to the size of the moon and the distance to, between them and in proportion to the sun and all the other planets and their part. And it's just, it's unbelievable how many things are going right for us here. And uh, to be in that condition where you're on these little tiny little rocks floating around this massive planet. Can't imagine it'd be easy. Uh, do you remember when Wrath at the beginning of the show said that there's no way that the elites could be worshiping a giant rock in space? Yes. Technically, he was correct. So one thing about Saturn is that it's not very dense. It's the least dense planet in the entire solar system. In fact, it's less dense than water. So if we could find a body of water as big as we needed to plop Saturn right in it, Saturn would actually float in that water. Saturn also has my favorite moon, which is Mimas, and I like it because um, it's rocky, it's got a lot of craters on it, but there's one huge crater that's about a third of the diameter, and it looks like the Death Star, <laughs> so it's the Death Star moon. <laughs> cool, all right. So this one is even, even better. This is my, my real favorite picture of Saturn. And again, this is sent back from the Cassini probe. And what you're seeing is Saturn in eclipse. So Cassini is actually sitting behind Saturn, and the sun is on the other side. So just as if on Earth, sometimes the moon gets in, in, in front of us, between us and the sun, and we get an eclipse, that's what you're seeing here. Uh, Saturn is eclipsing the sun. So you're seeing it backlit. So the rings are being backlit. Some of that light is scattering off, so we do actually see the dark side of Saturn through scattered light. Uh, and you see this wonderful, wonderful effect of the ring system. And you see how layered it is and how it extends out, and even to really, really fuzzy rings uh, much further out. But the, but the very best part of this picture, in my mind, gives us a little perspective, is this little spot here. And it's not, it's not a spot on my computer screen. If we zoom in a little further, you see it here. You see it's actually a little round blob, and that's the Earth. That's the Earth seen from billions of miles away, um, and again, really just shows us what a tiny little insignificant spot we are in the universe. Um, but how lucky we are to be able to send out these probes and send back information like this. There's some, uh, there's a decent amount of nihilism we're going to kind of touch on here tonight, I think. <laughs> yeah, the cosmic, yes, we're a dust in the wind, baby. Yep, just a little bloop in the timeline. The little blue dot. Um, and of course there's the death star, which, uh, kind of, uh, would you say, would you say that the death star is black cube, uh, symbology? Yeah. I mean, star Wars is, there's a lot of allegory there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of myth that's been transcribed into a sci-fi setting and that's definitely, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. One of these, uh, earlier links, the Saturn worship, the black cube, I, I didn't pull anything from there just because they've got so much on their fucking page, but um, they have lots of photos of uh, all of these sort of recurring 
symbols in ancient culture and modern pop culture through and through. Mm. Um, so that was uh, part three. I thought they said Corona somewhere in that clip, but I guess I must have missed it. Uh, but that, that third picture is indeed the eclipse of Saturn, and you can see the thin band of, of the sunlight behind it, and it's backlighting. backlighting. So the the, uh, the boat of Isis. You've which got, uh, the little crescent right of the eclipse, which I still don't, I didn't pull any clips on that one. And I still don't know a ton about that particular story. I think it might be in one of these, uh, clips here in a later. Oh, that's, that's, uh, Egyptian creation myth. That's like a whole, that could be its own thing. Right. And it like, goes deep because he, Isis gave birth to Osiris. And- uh, Isis carried. I think it has to do with going to the underworld. Okay, because he, she he was cut up into many pieces, and she went and recovered all the pieces except for one, and uh, and ferried him over to. I, I forget the exact details, but it's an it's an underworld story, and it it also has ties to sun worship. But because uh, the Egyptians were really wrote the book as we know it on on that, and so that it ties into that. But with Saturn, you know that's. That's such a cool thing because that's we're talking. Usually, they're talking about the moon. We're talking about a solar eclipse from Earth, right? With Saturn, that's funky. (laughs) (laughs) A little dad on dad action. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's like Papa and Uncle fighting. Uh, Well, there is one last other physical nature of Saturn I'd like to touch on real quick, and that is Saturn's crown. A vast hexagon is embedded in Saturn's north pole. The Illuminati must be involved. Hello everyone, I'm Ian O'Neill, space producer for Discovery News, and I'm here to bring you some Saturnian strangeness. Saturn's hexagon was first spotted by the Voyager spacecraft in the early 1980s, and it quickly became a thing of legend. It just looks so strange. It's very rare to see such a bizarre geometric shape just sitting there like a crown on the solar system's ring gas giant. Obviously, this shape has created countless conspiracy theories, and you can probably see why. Some of my personal favorites identify the hexagon as some sort of Illuminati structure, a hidden alien spacecraft and of course it's also the gates to hell. These theories might sound like fun but I promise you science has its own ideas and no aliens are required. NASA's Cassini spacecraft is celebrating its 10th year in Saturn orbit this month. It's also gotten up close and personal with Saturn's weird hexagon over the years. When it first arrived in 2004, Cassini took some detailed infrared images of the hexagon because the North Pole was in its winter shadow. Most recently Cassini has taken daylight photos of the shape in mind-blowing detail. Each of the hexagon's six sides measure around 9,000 miles long which is a thousand miles longer than Earth's diameter. Winds traveling around the hexagonal jet stream have been clocked at 200 miles per hour. Both poles of Saturn also have large swirling vortices. Both could easily swallow Earth. But the North Pole is the only one that has a hexagonal shape etched into it. Jupiter doesn't have a hexagon and neither do Uranus or Neptune. Saturn is the old one out. Mm, I hope I didn't miss one of my ties here. Oh well. Um, But yeah, uh, these pictures, if you haven't seen them before, please go find them because they are some of the it's just one of the craziest fucking things I've ever seen. Might as well call it a cursagon. <laughs> it is indeed. Sorry, I was typing for the chat. Yeah, it's uh, it's freaky. It's freaky ding. 
Um, I only got one more on the hexagon. I hope I didn't miss my word. If it's not in here, then we'll just roll straight into what's next. The leading what? hypothesis about how the hexagon is formed comes down to good old-fashioned fluid dynamics. During lab experiments with spinning fluids, scientists have found that if you spin a fluid faster in the center than its outward edge, turbulence starts to create eddies or tiny whirlpools around the edge. Out of this chaotic spinning, polygons spontaneously appear from the overall flow of the liquid. Turbulent eddies corral the fluid into a polygon, and one shape that forms when the flow is just right is a perfect hexagon with six sides of equal length. Scientists analyzing the Voyager and Cassini measurements have found that the Saturn hexagon seems to be created by atmospheric flow differential. This basically means the upper atmosphere winds at higher latitudes seem to be spinning faster than lower latitudes. So like the lab experiments with spinning water, small regions of atmospheric turbulence form, creating self-ordering hexagonal shapes out of the chaos. It seems that this atmospheric structure is also very stable, persisting through the decades since it was discovered by Voyager in the 1980s. Astronomers will continue to investigate the Saturn hexagon, and the mystery is far from completely solved. But its formation is most likely down to the fascinating science behind fluid dynamics, and not aliens. Which is what I thought too, physics, unless there's some fantastic evidence for the for otherwise. Yeah, it ties into, that, that symbolism kind of reflects the, the physics, I think. There's a lot of physics in there. There's a lot of geometry, a lot of math. Kind of like the way a crystal is, the, the it's the same structure on, on the outside as it is on the inside, on exactly. the macro and micro. And as above, so below. If something at sort of the microscopic level is a certain structure, then it's going to replicate itself at the macro level in that same structure. Um, at, at the at the most basic form, when you have the hexagon, when you keep the hexagon in mind or the six-sided or six-pointed figure, I always think of the was it the, the star of life or the uh, tree of life or whatever. Yeah, when the you tree draw of life a circle, and the seed of life. Yeah, the seed of life. You draw a circle. You think of all physics, all basic microparticles like this. If you drew a circle and then you had equidistant circles along the along the perimeter of that, no, I'm sorry, around the circumference of that circle, you would find that on one given circle, if all the circles were equidistant, you can only fit six circles into that. You can only you can only fold a paper so many times. You can only fit so many circles in a circle. You know, space relegates and it limits itself. It's based on rules. And uh, and I think that's that plays into it. You know, physics, certain particles, they have to behave a certain way because that's that's just how they're shaped. Well, that that might be a, a perfect segue into our next little topic. I thought they had said the word swarm somewhere in one of these clips, but I guess I missed it. Uh, but the hexagon works, and the the small like particles that that build it, that make it work, is a great segue into bees. Bees, bees. What is that? What is that? What is it? Oh no, not the bees! Not the not bees! The bees. <laughs> <laughs> not the bees! Not my eyes! Not my eyes! Not my eyes. There's, there's also uh, from Arrested Development. There's beans, bees, bees. Oh God, love it! I will hunt that one down. Um, oh please! But you could imagine my surprise when I found this little uh, blurb on the YouTube's for a company out of Holland, I think, called Ersty. Ersty. And you Ersty can Thursdays. double plus trust my surprise when I looked at their fucking video, and the first thing that popped up is a black square with a B in the middle of it for their logo. <laughs> 
Hey yo, hey yo, hey yo. I got these these uh these three are, are short and um yeah, I mean there's there's all sorts of uh little kind of shout outs in the video. There's there's the second logo I actually kind of dig. It's three triangles, the CMY, so cyan, magenta, and yellow. And when it when it merges, it creates the primary colors, blue, green, and red. And then it gets you your black with the white B on the inside. It's uh it's a very dark side of the moon, if you mm-hmm. know what I mean. Oh yeah. Uh, but this one, these these three are short. ESD Foundation was established in 2003 as the charitable successor to Erste Österreichische Sparkasse and once again adopted the B logo, which had faded into obscurity in the 1970s. As early as 1820, the B and the slogan, Work, Collect, Proliferate, was used as a trademark and later became the company logo of the first Austrian savings bank. Bees, known by all as diligent honey collectors and pollinators, have symbolized collective saving, cooperative action and social responsibility for decades. All sorts of buzzwords in that one. (laughs) Yeah, they really just rip them off now. It's like... They just they just spin the wheel. What words are we anyway? Yeah, there's uh there's some group in Manchester, I believe, they're giving out uh bee tattoos for the local community, um, for fundraising and it's part of a collective, a collective commons. Um unfortunately hmm. that video that, that was talking about it is the fucking old robo voice, which I really try not to bring to this show because we have much higher standards than that. Yes, our standards are are high. High, high, high. Uh here's part two. The B logo has now been brought to life. Erste Foundation organized the relocation of a beehive from its home in the Ötcher region in Lower Austria to the Secession's Golden Leaf Cupola in Vienna, directly across from Erste Foundation's office on Karlsplatz. Erste Foundation has thus joined the growing community of urban beekeepers who are trying to raise awareness in the urban environment of the imminent extinction of wild bees. Another synchro. I heard Hog's story was talking about the motherfucking bees earlier uh, tonight. Yep, yep. So there's a there's a little buzz, I guess, in the air. <laughs> hey, I can feel the fucking lightning through through whatever I'm sitting on, or if it's my headphones or something. Is it is it like I'm looking at it as we're it, doing the show? When you hear me say Jesus Christ, it's a big ass bolt of lightning. <laughs> how close is it? Uh, it looks like it's right on maybe the other side of uh, I don't know three two two three blocks out. It's it's pretty fucking close. Should you be you should be concerned or? Hey man, I've been riding the lightning since 2012. Yeah, who what am I saying? I'm I'm talking to the wrong guy. Okay, this is of course you're you're. Good I go. feel fairly grounded. We'll we'll see how well that theory works out. If that's should. what we are, we on the behind the schemes, we are very grounded. I would say. So oh yeah, you'll be okay. Um, I don't see the fucking photo, so I must have forgotten it, but. Where they place these beehives that they bring into their city across from their uh, office, there's a tree out there, and the tree has golden apples on it. Mm. Come on. Come on. Mm. Yes, I am my own surge protector. Thank you, Quirkus. (laughs) (laughs) There'll be no surges here, I tell you what. (laughs) No surge. No fourth surge. No second surge. No surges. I can give you a third surge of bees. 
The Erste Foundation bees have found plenty of nourishment in the area around the Sezession and have happily proliferated. During their first summer in Vienna, the colony grew to 65,000 bees. The busy insects have produced more than 30 kilograms of honey. The Erste Foundation beekeepers give the honey to friends, project partners and supporters, thus spreading the bees' message. Friends, project supporters, and co-workers? There's a lot of buzzwords about, <laughs> um, about like, collective cohesion. Which Fuck you, course, Mom. You don't get no honey. You don't give me honey. <laughs> that, that I was expecting them to say family in there. Friends, family, co-workers. Um, no, it's about social cohesion. It's about, it's about having people that aren't related to you be on the same page that's a what's your idea of bees as far as uh you know symbology and old-timey stuff occulty stuff what's your what's your take on the bee uh well i wasn't really too familiar based off of our conversation last week i i I have a couple clips on uh the pagan sort of ties to bees i am of the mindset that they are sort of the backbone to what keeps this planet going to some degree. Um, as far right. as just, you know, pollination and just keeping, keeping everything moving, keeping everything flowing. Um, I very much would be into starting a hive. I, I thought about it last year, uh, but mm. living, living in a city with like in half of a backyard probably wasn't the most appropriate place and definitely can't do it here. Um, mm. But as far as occult symbology, I guess it's the gathering of, of pollen, gathering of knowledge, distilling it into gold, distilling it into honey, sustenance. Sure, yeah. And this uh, sort of nectar, this um, divinity almost. Right. It's a, it's, a creative, it's a creative cohesion as opposed to like the ant, which itself is a, is a cohesive animal. It's, it's a lot of small things working together, but they don't, they don't create shit. They just, they just destroy. They're evil. But the, uh, the bee is, uh, is a, is a force of cre- of creation. And indeed it's, it's, it's necessary for our, in our world to have, you know, otherwise we wouldn't be able to grow crops and flowers and stuff. Yeah. Um, but you do you know about the Kubrick connection, the the two thousand one connection with bees? Oh, because uh, as they approach the monolith, they start ramping the sound That's of cr- bees humming. Right. That's right. You're you're a Kubrick fan, right? I am not actually. I have not, not? seen. I've seen hardly any of his films. He kind okay. of freaks me out, and I've been. It's, he's one of those guys that I've waited for a very long time to really consume any of his movies. Mm-hmm. But one of these points, it's going to be this, okay, we're sitting down, I'm watching all of these for the very first time, the green room, the true deniers, you and me, we're all going to be here for my first reactions on a lot of these fucking <laughs> Kubrick films. How exciting is that? It, that'll be awesome. I would absolutely have a blast uh, watching the Kubrick films with you and everybody here. Uh, but I wouldn't recommend watching a lot of them all at once. It's fair to say you could watch one and then, you know, take a break, <laughs> digest it, and then uh, and then give a shot at another one. Unless you really got a kick out of the first one. Netflix binge that shit. Oh, yeah. You, there's a couple of great ones that are pretty easy to watch, but a lot of them that aren't. Um, but uh, the reason I bring it up, 2001, yeah, as they approach the monolith, is the apes are coming along the 
the obelisk and and they're kind of getting the whatever the gift and the obelisk has a lot of saturn images imagery as well just being the black cube or the uh, proportional rectangle or whatever very very cosmic the the golden rectangle <laughs> um they they get they take that next step in evolution and you hear the bees they they buzz louder and louder and louder and the bees in that context among a couple of things, represents that social cohesion that the apes are now going to work together and be in a society together in a way that they have never done before, in a way that only a choice selection of animals and insects really have that innate, inherent ability to do that. And bees are, have an unbelievable cohesion. They, they have a, a hierarchy, you know, they have a queen, they have drones, they have workers, and uh, they have a way of communicating that we don't really understand. If you know you're if you're in a bee, uh, <laughs> I don't know what they call them, but a hive, you know, a place where they got a bunch of hives and they're making honey. Um, and you're wearing the outfit, and and you know your ankle is exposed or whatever, and a bee stings that ankle, and you know the whole hive thinks that you're a threat. Once that one bee gets your ankle, all the other bees that are swarming around will all at once understand that there's a weakness and then they will all start going for that ankle. They have a way of, of, of communicating that is incredible. And, uh, and I think the ancient peoples knew that. I think that, you know, bee honey harvesting and beekeeping is an extremely ancient uh, trade. And I think that that's one of the big reasons why that's, it represents that in, um, in occult symbolism and in just symbolism in general. Well, this is a point where we come to one of the uh, pick one. Would you like to hear about an- advanced ancient Egyptian beekeeping? Oh my God, words are hard. <laughs> advanced <laughs> ancient Egyptian beekeeping techniques or pagan bees? Ooh, pagan bees or Egyptian bees? Egyptian beekeeping. Beekeeping. Uh, we can do them both too. I don't know what you got to do tonight. I don't. Well, I'll, I'll fucking I think- play everything. <laughs> I think the pagan bees just sounds interesting because uh, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to expect with pagan bees. All right. I kind of know what to expect with Egypt. So let, let's do pagan bees. The honeybee is highly esteemed in the Indo-European perspective, occupying a privileged position above other insects and most animals too. This is not merely as materialists would suspect due to its practical use as a producer of honey, but rather due to the metaphysical symbolic significance of honey and mead. In the Nordic tradition, the blood of Kvasir, the wisest man, was blended by the gods with honey to create the mead of poetry, which brings wisdom. This metaphor for the attainment of higher wisdom by focusing the intellect on the task of blending and brewing divine knowledge is also found in the Hindu tradition, where Parvati, wife of Shiva, ground vermilion saffron and water from the temple of Shiva in her hand to make a Shiva lingam. The bee itself is most highly regarded by the Baltic people, whose pagan customs are thought to most closely resemble the original Aryan tradition. They honor the fertility god of bees, Babylas, by housing beehives in wooden effigies, like these in Lithuania. The Lithuanians also had a bee goddess called Austeia, whose name combines the word for weaving with the word for flying. They believed that queen bees chose their hives according to the conduct of the farmer. When a queen brought her drones to a new apiary, then her family and that of the farmer were joined through Bikiolista, a special bond between bee and man. The Lithuanian language has different words for death, all of them ordered hierarchically. One for the death of a man, 
one for the death of animals and another for the death of mere insects. But the word that can apply to the death of man also applies to bees. Dead bees were also supposed to be buried in the earth, just like humans. That one, wow. yeah, that one kind of caught my fucking interest. What an honor. What a privilege. Well, it's, it's again, that's kind of like Father Time, uh, Mr. Death, uh, uh, with Saturn fucking, or Kronos, or uh, whoever these fucks till in the earth. Um, that's I, that's just kind of, I guess, where my head went with that one. Yeah. <clears throat> and, Excuse you me. know, unf- let's just get right down to it. Bees are cute. They're, they're darn cute. I mean, the nice ones, the nice bumblebee is, is adorable. It, bro- it buzzes around, and it, like, turns out beautiful flowers for you and it humps flowers and it's funny and i love those little bastards i mean you don't want too many of them and the nasty ones you know they'll eat your hot dog or whatever if you're outside but you know what i'm trying to say hey we should make hot dog honey Mm. yeah hot dog honey the behind the schemes very own hot dog honey coming to your tables 2033 you don't have anything on those uh carnivorous bees that make honey out of the flesh that they render no but i wish i did well let that image uh marinade and uh <laughs> i suppose we can press forward <laughs> this is uh this is my last little bee thing this is one of those robo voices the bee is also a symbol for wisdom for it collects pollen from many flowers and turns it into the nourishing honey which is the gold of bees i thought it was nice um all right so mm. before we hit intermission let's put our heads together see what you want to touch on I have uh, The Hidden Second Sun, done by two Blue Anons, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Some of those uh, those uh, far left-wing nut jobs. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what you would expect. Uh, there's a guy that thought he saw something else on the other side of the sun, and they just tear into him. I'm not actually feeling them the more I'm sitting here talking about it, so fuck them. No. <laughs> yeah them fuck them man yeah that's what we're gonna do we're gonna we're gonna clip your shit and then not even play it on the show how do you like that (laughs) you know how it is this is this is the nature of the beast well then uh we'll we'll go ahead with our last two categories um since we touched on the bees it's only appropriate that we learn about some of the other mythology associated with saturn And, and this is the golden age number one in a time long past, so long past that even the grandmothers of our grandmothers were not yet born, the trees were forever in fruit, the animals lived in perfect harmony, and the little agouti played fearlessly with the beard of the jaguar. For the Hindus, this was the Krita Yuga, or perfect age. The Iranians called it the age of the brilliant Yima. The Chinese, the age of perfect virtue. The Danish, peace of Frodi. It was paradise, the Garden of Eden. And the memory dates to the first expressions of civilization. According to ancient Greek poets, philosophers, and historians, the present age is just a shadow of the former epoch called the Golden Age of Kronos. But who was this ancient god, Kronos? All Greek astronomical traditions agreed that Kronos was the planet Saturn. There are these long, huge, epic, sweeping music beds, as you can obviously hear. Mm, so, that's the norm. Yeah, cutting out like 20 seconds of it at a time. <laughs> it's going to sound yeah. kind we'll of put a stamp weird. on that, though. Kronos is Saturn, yeah. which is... And then Kronos, of course, is 
in Greek mythology. He's the father of all the gods. And this channel is good. The Trample on Snakes, it looks like the entire channel is devoted to Saturn, symbology, pop, and ancient culture. Mm. So check it out before before YouTube takes it down. Um, Which they will. Yeah. Uh, so this is part two. Our own name for the planets came from the Romans. In unison, Roman poets and historians insisted that in a former time, Saturn had ruled as a god king producing a paradise on Earth. It would be almost impossible to overstate the power of this memory among the different cultures. For the Babylonians, the Hebrews, and the Greeks, the most sacred day of the week was the Sabbath, a ritual remembrance of the lost epoch. And in each of these cultures, this holiest day was the day of Saturn, Latin Saturnidis, or Saturn's Day, the Celtic day of Ceter, our Saturday. But the Golden Age did not last. In the myths of Quetzalcoatl, of Ra, and of Aum, of Kronos and of Saturn, the Golden Age does not just come to an end. It ends violently. I really do love mythology, and if the longer we can stay in this vein, I think the happier, happier I'm going to be. Oh, I love mythology too. Quetzalcoatl, Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology. It's glorious. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll, we could do like a, a special episode where we only go through the books, like no, no web resources, just to do it old school, like we're like in oh. fifth grade again. <laughs> oh gosh, I'd have to go to the library. I mean, I got some stuff on hand, but if we're gonna do it for real, I want my, I want the pool of books. That'd be so much fun. But I don't know. Yeah, we could totally do it. Just a Greek mythology episode would probably be fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Part three is really short. I don't remember why it's so short. And with the collapse of the Golden Age arrives the feared comet. The dragon of darkness. The fall into the cosmic night. The clash of the titans. Okay. So those boils down to some allegorical uh, battle. You get Lord of the Rings ties into this as well. Lord of the Rings. You get the the clash of the of the new gods, you know, which would be Aragorn, etc., the new heroes versus the old Saturn, the old Kronos, uh, uh, Sauron, and uh, all of his bras, all of his little moons, and uh, his ring of influence. And we, I brought up in the chat earlier Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell's work as well, which you could say that Star Wars uh, just, just I mean, it's entirely based off. Of <laughs> Ripping pages from the book. <laughs> just just bit by bit. I mean, what he did was is he basically bulletinized Joseph Campbell's work. He turned it into a very simple 10-step uh, arc that your typical hero, you know, in the in the greatest tales ever told, this hero, she or he, will go through these exact processes to get to this exact sort of conclusion, and this is what it means. And right down to, you know, just like when you get what, when you meet who, you meet the old man in the beginning, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, the magician. It, yeah, and we could have a whole episode on that too, but that relates to all of this as well, and that is rooted in, in sort of the same sort of uh, juice that we're hinting at when we talk about these stories. 
that and you know the hero's journey itself is is to turn a goal <laughs> in, in a in a way I would imagine just with the the circle and all that it, it, that in and of itself is a ring it's a the hero's journey is a circle it's a ten step circle oh and yeah the idea is that when you get to ten you've just arrived back where you've started again at the end of Lord of the Rings where does Frodo end up he ends up back at the Shire until he leaves for uh, with the elves but. You know, for for a long time, that's that's the end. That's where they get to. Is all the other hobbits stayed there? They're they're all home and back again. I'm and there and back again. I just had something come to me. Instead of a clip of the day, how about a thought of the day? But instead of the day, since it's at night, I'm going to do a thought of the night because thought that shit just blew my mind. Oh yeah, baby. And I already, I already, I already fucking had something prepped for that, anyways. There's many people coming. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> it's just long enough. You can tag any fucking ISO to it. <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, all right. So, I, I, you know, the one thing that really stood out to me so far is that they've established that Kronos, Saturn, totally separate entity. What is this dragon motherfucker that's fallen from the sky? That's fallen from the heavens. That's that's something. That's what I've really latched onto. So he's he's distinguished the golden age under Saturn. There's this climactic battle. A new sun emerges, which I guess would be Sol or Helios. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. it's not. Maybe they'll answer it in this next one. The stars are set loose, falling into the void. The land is on fire, mountains split or crumble, rocks explode in flame, all the rivers and seas overflow and sweep across the earth, and the universe becomes a furnace burning everything. The old Norse poem Belispa recalls the great catastrophe of Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods. When the terrifying wolf Fenrir its jaws reaching from heaven to earth brought forth a brood of howling wolves and the sun became blood red and vanished. And the world slipped into a winter lasting for years. Kind of like a dark winter. No. Icelandic, Aztec, and Babylonian. Every ancient culture seems to have remembered an event called the end of the world. A worldwide tradition says that before a king ever ruled on earth, a prototype of kings arose in heaven. Father of kings, model of the good king, the universal monarch. The Aztec Quetzalcoatl, the Egyptian Ra, the Hindu Brahma, Every culture had its own universal monarch. It is said that the local king is responsible for the prosperity of the nation. In the reign of a good king, the earth flowers abundantly. Why is this? It is because the universal monarch, who set the standards of kingship, brought forth a remarkable condition in primeval times. An epoch called the Golden Age. Hmm. I think I'm just going to, let's just go into number five here. Sunrise. To the star worshippers, 
a symbol of the cosmic dawn, when the universal monarch, the first sun god, shone above the world. The ancient Greeks called their sun god Helios. We assume they were referring to the sun we know, the sun that rises in the east and sets in the west. But in the earliest Greek manuscripts, Helios was the name of the planet Saturn. And the Greeks were not alone. The Babylonian Shamash, always translated as sun, was identified as Saturn. So also the Egyptian Ra, the Hindu Surya, the Latin Sol. But Saturn is a mere dot in a starry expanse. What could have caused the first star worshippers to celebrate that minute speck as the sun? Every day our sun rises in the east and sets in the west. But the archaic sun god Saturn did not rise or set. It did not move. Egyptian texts say of the sun god Atum or Ra, the Greek god lives fixed in the middle of the sky. Surprisingly, the Babylonians used almost exactly the same language to describe the sun god Shamash in the stationary center of heaven. For an earthbound observer, there is only one motionless spot in the sky, the celestial pole. The stars we see are actually cutting a circle around the polar axis, close to the star Polaris. Of course, nothing would seem more irrational than an ancient sun god at this location. And yet, throughout the Near East, the universal monarch appears as a central sun called the axis and the pole of the world. To the Hindus, the sun god Surya occupied the place of supreme rest, the motionless site. So do the Greek Helios and the Aztec Quetzalcoatl. In their earliest expressions, these figures occupy the stationary cosmic center. There is an astonishing unity to this global tradition. Ancient Iranian astronomers identified the pole as Saturn's home, and so did the Neoplatonists of Greece. Roman poets remembered Saturn as the steadfast star, and Chinese astronomers recalled that, in the beginning, Saturn was the arch premier at the celestial pole. This does sound like shit. I don't think I'll ever do something like that again. <laughs> oh, yeah. It doesn't sound that bad to me, but whatever. whatever. Um, it, it's a little journey. I thought it just did a pretty cool job uh, explaining how these archetypes show up ancient culture again and again and again and again and again. Um, I was often having to doing with just constants in the night sky. Saturn is just a consistent thing in the night sky. Yep. And that's what ties us all together. Uh, well, we pretty much have reached the, uh, intermission part. Um, I do have some clips from David Icke talking about Saturn. Those are fairly more common. Uh, again, they're kind of long, so I think we'll leave them for tonight. Cause I, I feel like, uh, they've been touched on plenty of other places before, unless you want to hear him again. Nah, David Icke, uh, nah, if you want we can find him wherever he's always around. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll just... We'll we'll file him back into bottom secret. <laughs> yeah, just back in the rotation, you know, in the secret cabinet. Cool. Well, uh, then in that regards, that puts us at intermission, and I'm going to go step out and watch the storm roll in. I think, or watch the storm progress. Yeah, try to take some pics or something. Throw them in the chat. Hell yeah, you know it. Nice. Uh, well, this is uh, <laughs> this is a very themed intermission, everybody. This is The Party Lights with I'm Tired of You, Satan.
Light from FMU. Thanks for listening. You told the preacher just what to say. Now the whole church spit every which way. Two CDs and two cassettes. Featuring Warren.
Masters of Rock. The greatest hits from the bands with the biggest hair, the loudest guitars, and the coolest videos. Twisted Sister. Judas Priest. Nelson. Cinderella. This 35-track collection is not sold in stores. To order, call the number on your screen or send check or money order. Two CDs, $26.99. Two cassettes, $21.99. Rush delivery available. You're on Stockholm. Here you can see more of this cold of set. Past, present, future, all are one in your Stockholm. When songs are right, and the old ones shall turn. Yah, Saturn. Yah, 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 they are successful in their mission to open all these gates and bring about this chaos, then humanity will become essentially nothing more than slaves. This is an important message for customers who have recently purchased Omega Mart lemons. Some customers have confused Omega Mart lemons with lemons. For that, we're sorry. Please return this product to Omega Mart immediately. Or for assistance, please call the number on your screen. For your safety, this product has been removed from our shelves and will be carefully disposed of. Omega Mart thanks you for your continued trust. <laughs> so, just what do you think you are doing here? Yes, you. Evidently, you entered the wrong door. Do you ever believe a word that I say? Am I a liar? Or am I? The Messiah. Am I of the darkness or the light? Again, I refuse to give you direct answers. All I will say is this. I lied once before. It's not just choose my guy.
Welcome back to the second half of uh, Behind the Schemes, episode 39. Kind of lost track of where we were there for a second. <laughs> and it's good to be back. Yeah. Uh, I am super in love with those Omega Market commercials that I found, by the way. Um, if the creator of these ever hears this by any chance, I thoroughly enjoy your work. That is That is just my type of humor. It's my type of aesthetic through and through. <laughs> it was the lemon commercial and uh, some good stuff. I, I definitely want people to double back. Circle back on that one. Check that video out. Yeah, you guys, I like that last uh, jam, too. That was, a, that was a good last jam. Who was that? That was the Black Cube of Saturn by Gray Mantis. Let me, I'm going I'm to have to write that one down because that's, that's a banger in my estimation. Why write it down when you can just get the link from the show notes? Or just listen to this later. <laughs> well, it's there gonna be a go. lot of scrubbing. A lot of scrubbing. Now I'll write down a time code. Uh, can can I do a station ID? Yeah. All right. Just in case you're tuning in right now, you're listening to Behind the Schemes with Booberry and myself, Lavish, uh, every Monday night at nine thirty Central. So check it out. Hell yeah! And we've reached that part of the show where we're looking at imagery, where it's the cog from the uh i guess is it like anarcho-communism i forget which one where it's like it's part scythe and part gear wheel and they still got the the hammer is in the handle of some capacity what are you talking about i'm sorry there's a type of communist flag oh sure this the hammer and sickle right but there's another one that's got a, a a gear that sort of does the crescent shape Okay. Um, and I forget which particular branch that is <laughs> subsidiary. Uh, I'm not familiar with that graphic. Gotcha. Uh, but I imagine you're going to maybe tie it into uh, the actual image of the the symbol for Saturn itself. Well, one of the one of the pictures that I had found this this one's 
Fairly interesting. It is the it's the communist red background with the gear and a yellow star in the middle. But on the outside, there's no there's no sickle. There's no hammer. But there is a ring going around the the whole fucking gear. Uh, and it gives you this Saturnic communistic flag, which is fairly interesting. Mm. So so in the first half, we covered some like physical properties of Saturn. We looked at some of the esoterical sort of shindigs. This the sort of chicanery that's going on with its rings, with its crown. Um, we, we looked a little bit at all the ways Saturn just keeps representing over and over in all these different cultures. I want to examine the other side of the spectrum and get into some communism and Saturnism. And who else to better start with than some Karl Marx? And this is uh, this is not actually Karl Marx speaking. I don't know if he was ever around a, re- a voice recorder of any capacity. That would be interesting yeah. to find. I think he I think he died before that was around, but uh, I could be wrong. But uh, this this video is is fairly interesting because <laughs> if you look on the uh, behind the the guy that's speaking, he's got a picture of Tatooine. Which features two sons mm. in the illustration. Uh, so this is uh, opium for the religion of or religion for the masses. Opium, opium, something religion. Opium is made from the dried milky fluid from the opium poppy. The fluid contains the alkaloid morphine, which blocks the transmission of pain signals to the brain. When smoked, opium causes short-term feelings of relaxation, reduced anxiety pain relief, along with impaired coordination and alertness. Because of these physiological responses, people often interpret the quote, religion is the opium of the people, as meaning religion is an escape mechanism, a feel-good buffer against reality as people escape into a silly world of illusions and hallucinations. But this doesn't quite capture what Marx is trying to say. Sure, Marx might have agreed with that interpretation. In the same quote, he calls religion the illusory happiness of the people, but check out the whole quote in context have you ever read the communist manifesto have i ever read the communist manifesto yeah. uh, i can't say i have i i tried to read capital once but capital. That, i i don't think it's possible to read it, it it's it i can't i got it in three volumes and each volume was like a thousand pages and it was just the densest most boring shit you've ever had to parse through in your life and i <laughs> I, I i to this day Honest to God, assume that nobody has actually read that book. Nobody's actually fully read it because I don't think it can be done. That, uh, that kind of sounds like what Crowley would do because he would fucking do all that uh, like sort of gibberish language and and not not gibberish that it was all just nonsense and made up, but it also yeah that it was kind of nonsense and made up where he like creates his own code and mm-hmm. maybe it's that creation of the, the air around him that makes it so alluring. It's like, if you make it look big and bombastic and theatrical, that's what, so maybe, maybe that's all, like the guy took however fucking long to write these thousand page tomes. Surely he knows what's going on. <laughs> yeah. The idea is like, Oh, this guy's a genius. And you know, in that giant body of work, yeah, there are ideas that are attractive, that, you know, are attractive to a certain demographic of people who have nothing to lose. Um, that's that's made, that made an idea. And when you're talking about tying back to what you are saying earlier about the power rising from below to take over the top as opposed to top down, a, a lot of the great religions, in particular Christianity, I would say, they embrace that idea very much, the idea of... You know, the meek shall inherit the earth, 
the the poor and blessed are the poor, blessed, you know, those are the people that are going to quote unquote get into heaven or those are the desirable people of the world are the, are the, the humble and the, um, and the destitute as opposed to the the Kings and Queens and professionals and lawyers and doctors, you know, and, and that's totally what communism embraces. It's, it's a, it's a total reversal of what we would call a meritocracy in a sense, your traditional meritocracy. And you just purely go by, whatever arbitrary statistic you've devised that matches your ideology. And in the, in the instance for the Soviet Union, it was about who owned land and who, you know, had a certain amount of wealth. And if you had a certain amount of wealth and you had land, then it was taken from you. And it was given, you know, in some sort of weird social program to people who didn't know how to run it. And so you had famine and you had, you know, you destroyed a certain class of people that, that were peasants, but they were a merit, a merit based wealth that, that existed within that very narrow window that was, you know, essentially modern serfdom. It almost sounds like you want to say social credit, (laughs) but I won't, I won't go so far to assume. (laughs) I mean, there is that too. And that that was the idea, but there really was an economic point to it where it didn't matter what your social stance was if you had land oh yeah yeah then it was going to be stripped from you yeah that's uh that's one of the things um i forget which series eclipse but uh and he's a a catholic writer uh, a professor i forget which university but one of the things that he sits there and harps on is this idea of abolition 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 of private property abolition of uh he didn't outright say religion, but he definitely was of the bias that they were trying to eradicate it. Uh, abolition of the family, just the complete tearing down. And so, the complete subservience to the state or yeah. to whatever the national identity is. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, and then forego that. But, you know, that's, again, Christendom and early Christendom. You have you have examples in the Gospels of, of men selling their land and giving all of their money to Jesus and his apostles. Uh, there, there's a socialistic aspect to that as well. Yeah. Uh, we'll we'll get back to opium. This is part two. Religion opium, is the sigh of the <laughs> oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real Illusions. happiness. Now, the first line is key. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed people. So Marx isn't so much calling religion a painkiller. He is calling religion the product of oppressed people. It's people projecting their needs and desires onto an idealized existence because factory workers in 19th century Europe really couldn't get that happiness in real life. As sociologist Meredith McGuire says, Marx considered the distress that people expressed in religion to be real, but religion itself as an illusion preventing people from doing anything effective to remedy their condition. So for Marx, religion has a social function, distracting people away from their oppression into thinking that their state is somehow the natural order of things, instead of what it really was, the status quo being maintained by elite, powerful men. Just men, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's no powerful women. Just involved. us dudes here. <laughs> yeah. That are single. None of, none of them had wives. None of them had. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Hmm. It's, uh, I mean, these are kind of, <clears throat> these are going to interweave between people that are pro-Marx and people that are anti-Marx. Uh, and, and I guess it's the only way I could kind of figure out where the, the needle landed. Um, 
Because based off of what this guy here is saying, it sounds like Marx understood the gist of religion, that it's just belief and intent and, and, uh, or I should say, maybe, maybe I took that a little too far and I'm just describing magic, but I think you're on, he thought that it was magic. It was an illusion. Yeah. Illusory. Illusory. It was was the most important role it served was to placate the masses is his idea. And or one of his ideas. I will go ahead and take it as far as priest class being the elite class, being the scientist class, being the elite class, being the only ones that could comprehend the, the literature, and they would be the ones to disseminate the truth to the masses. Yeah. So, to, yeah. Yeah, totally. And Marx, who was German, not Russian, he was German, and he grew up in probably just the gnarliest Catholic imperial <laughs> upbringing in germany at that time you could imagine right because uh his father had converted to lutheranism i think right which of course is a big controversy in the face of you know your traditional old school catholic faith because they were wanting to i'm i'm fuzzy on it i guess it's been so long since i've looked at it but they wanted to sort of disband with the the ritual that you would find in the Roman Catholic church, right? All the sort of pomp and the. Yeah, it was, it was a big uh, leap for Puritanism. Not in the sense of like, that was, it was for the sake of Puritanism, but it was just a simplifying of what had become, you know, what was an excessive amount of pomp for what was fundamentally a church for the poor and the humble. And also is about access to information. Martin Luther led to, you know, the Bible being translated into other languages other than Latin. Yeah. And so, you know, before him, you had to know Latin to read the Bible. And, uh, you know, that's a big deal. Like if the whole world is Catholic, but you can't even read the damn book, you know, that's a big, that's a piece of shit. So yeah, it, it's a, I don't know what else to say about Martin Luther. I, I, I can't say I'm too well read on on his ordeal because there's a lot to say on that sort of thing. For sure. I mean, it's it's all documented <laughs> very well, you know. Well, uh, we'll we'll wrap up with these here real quick. Does religion uphold and maintain the status quo? Well, in some ways, yes. Marx wasn't a stupid guy. There was a good reason why he argued this. Certain aspects of religion are inherently conservative and resistant to social change. And by this, I mean religious adherents have a vested interest in the continuity of their tradition, passing on their beliefs and rituals down through the generations. Another example of this would be how religion is used to justify and legitimate political power. Like when a king proclaims his rule is divinely mandated by God, or the king legitimates going to war by saying it is a holy war inspired by God. In these examples, religion has legitimating power. And we see this in cultures all over the world for thousands of years, especially when kings act as priests or mediators between the people and divine powers, like the Roman emperor declaring himself Pontifex Maximus, the high priest of the Roman people. Religion can also be used as a means for social control. Public shaming or shunning individuals for deviating from social rules can inhibit social change discouraging people from acting out of line. I know they're talking about religion here, but the only other thing that I can hear is them talking about communism obtaining the power to legitimize itself. (laughs) Yeah. Does Rasputin come to mind? Uh, But I mean, that's one example of countless examples, but just a holy man who weaseled his way in and is one of the most powerful people in the country based on some fucking phony baloney religious bullshit. 
and one of the best dope dealers, apparently. Oh, yeah. And he, and he laid it down, you know. But <laughs> when we talk about uh, the elite and we talk about Mystery Babylon, we talk about these old structures and power structures that have been in existence for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. The We're talking about the priest class. That is... That's the ultimate power to have is to be the, the, not the king, but the person behind the king. The one in the king's ear. Yeah, the one in the king's ear. Because if you're the king or the queen, you are, you live your whole life with a target on your back. And there's a reason why, you know, royalty, people who are declared royalty are excluded from the Forbes 500 list or the Forbes richest, you know, billionaire list or whatever. Not Forbes 500, but the Forbes. You know what I mean? Yeah, 500 richest people in the world or whatever. The real rich people in the world are the royalty of the world, and they get excluded because they don't want to be famous. They don't want to be known. They want to be loved, and they want to have a low profile. And uh, the people who really control this country, the people who are in the ear of Joe Biden, you won't see them on TV. You won't see. You will never hear their names unless you really dig deep and you learn. You know who lobbyists are and who that. You know the technocracy, in my opinion, is the new clergy. They're the they're the gatekeepers now who the government is forced to work with because they have all the money and they have all of the influence and um, they have and all they the have eyes all, on them. And they have the eyes and the technology, and and it's an incestuous nightmare. Um, but that's where the power lies, and the, that priest class is, you know, the in the background of every major thing that happens, or just whoever is behind the scenes, behind the schemes, even to tie it in. You know, <clears throat> I know you're saying the name of our show, but I I have to admit I clench a little bit every time because <laughs> I think you're going to say behind the screens. Which is something only Darren O does. And I think Midas did it <laughs> on uh, <laughs> that night he was testing his stuff out. Well, I like, I think, yeah, yeah. We can talk about a later date, but I think it's catchy. Behind the scheme is catchy. I like it too. It's, it's, uh, and you know, it works out. It attracts all of these theater fucks, you know, these real artistic kinds. Yeah, all these, uh, all these artsy types. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of, of, uh, speaking of art, are you familiar with the play, The Crucible? Oh yeah. I'm definitely familiar with The Crucible. So it was written by Arthur Miller, um, who is... Also known as Marilyn Monroe's first husband. Oh, that I did not know. Oh yeah. He, he and her, they were a thing. Interesting. Hmm. Marilyn was a, was a big reader. She was a very, very smart lady and she... She wrote poetry and she, she, she loved Arthur Miller. She was like, she was fascinated with that world. But uh, anyway, I digress. I apologize. That'll, uh, I'm going to add that one to a sticky note here. But uh, this is a short little introduction into The Crucible. Suddenly, writing The Crucible wasn't just the next dramatic venture. It was an urgent piece of political and social commitment to him. Once home, Miller abandoned his earlier work, skipped three pages in his thin brown notebook, and wrote the first lines of what would become the Crucible. Uncle, the rumor of witchcraft is all about. I think you best go down and deny it yourself. The parlor's packed with people, sir. I'll sit with her. And what shall I say to them? That my daughter and my niece I discovered dancing like heathen in the forest? <laughs> when the play starts, Reverend Paris, one of the Puritan ministers in a community, is concerned, he's troubled, because his daughter lies in what seems to be a state of uh, suspension, some type of unconscious state. And he thinks she's sick, but he also fears she's possessed. Uncle, we did dance. 
Let you tell him I confess it and I'll be whipped if I must be. But they're speaking of witchcraft. Betty's not witched. Abigail, I cannot go before the congregation when I know you have not opened with me. What did you do with her in the forest? We did dance, Uncle. And when you leaped out of the bush so suddenly, Betty was frightened and then she fainted. And there's the whole of it. They're afraid they're going to go to hell for dancing and doing what they did in the woods, which is very much the devil's work. And so they are afraid that they're going to be punished, probably maybe even killed, because if they are accused of being witches, they might get hung. One of the articles mm. I pulled up on Arthur Miller, this line's really funny. Miller was not only anti-anti-communist, he was pro-communist. <laughs> mm. Of all Cause, people. Because uh, the, the way they describe it is like, liberals for the most part are anti-anti-communist. You know, so it's like they, mm-hmm. they, they aren't. They don't, com- yeah, they don't hate, uh, they hate, they hate bigots who are anti-communist, who they perceive to be bigots. Like, uh, like the Trumps, you know, it's like, they I don't know. It's like, they don't recognize that there's a threat and then they fight the, the people who call out the threat. It's very strange. Uh, another one of Miller's fans was Jane Fonda, who shared her excitement when upon her propaganda visit to Hanoi in 1972, she quote, saw Vietnamese actors and actresses perform the second act of Arthur Miller's play, All My Sons. She found <laughs> it very moving. <laughs> Um, so where we're kind of treading into now is the, the parallels between the McCarthyism, quote unquote, witch hunts and the, I mean, the crucible is about the Salem witch trials. Which, yeah. Just a quick recap of the crucible for anyone that doesn't know they're in, you know, puritanical Salem and some girls go out into the woods and they're being naughty and they dance around and you know, that's being naughty. They they act like they're being possessed or whatever. And somebody catches them and they, they get all this hell breaks loose and these girls get all this power. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of all about the power that the girls get, especially the main girl. I think Abigail is her name. And, uh, they, they just control this town. Like whoever they want to get thrown into the fucking lake. They, Oh, this lady. Oh yeah. She's a witch. Oh, this lady. Oh, whatever. You know? And, and just, it's a complete turn of um, of society and an exploitation of uh, of a fanatical system, and and it shows. It, I think to me, it, it always shows that the weasels are the ones who end up being in charge of these really strict societies. You know, whoever can exploit the game the best, right? Yeah, I mean, I think he nailed it with with the uh, strict right there. the The term that is just right underneath of it for me is cancel culture. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to make. Yeah, and that's what it is. It's cancel culture. It's a very small group of, of weird people. You don't know why they have the power, but they do. Kind of and controlling whoever... that mass hysteria. Yeah, yeah. They have captivated enough people to the point where what they say goes. And then it gets interesting when Miller makes these parallels between the Red Scare of the fifth or the Cold War and the Salem witch trials, like it, it, I, I, I want to go back and pay attention to how the cancel culture was operating at that time with all of the blacklists and just the, the way they were tracking on everybody that I think that's really going to be the tell, because that for me is where the split really takes place. 
in modern culture of the quote-unquote West Civ son of religious doctrine versus the communist rule of the the second son, the invisible son of Saturnism. Mm-hmm. Um, did we do that second Crucible clip? I forgot. <laughs> uh, no, we didn't. We just did the one. Oh, uh, well, I do have the numbers here real quick for Salem. 185 people were accused, 141 women, 44 men. Of that, 52 men, excuse me, 52 women and seven men were tried. 26 women and five men were convicted. And 14 women and five men were executed. Yeah, people died. They were burned at the stake. It's, it's very that, brutal. They, yeah, they weren't just like, they they burned them alive. It was, it was gnarly. Just a complete psychotic moment. And which kind of echoes to the, what was it, uh, Spanish Inquisition? I mean, this yeah. this sort of like uh, this re- religious persecution, it's nothing new. But at the same point, it, this ideology is is guilty of some of the same tactics. I, I've got a clip specifically for that coming up here in a little bit. Um, mm. But we'll we'll finish up here with uh, Miller. Betty, wake up. Betty, Betty. You cannot evade me, Abigail. Did your cousin drink any of the brew in that kettle? She never drank it. Did you drink it? No, sir. Did Tituba ask you to drink it? She tried, but I refused. Why are you concealing? Have you sold yourself to Lucifer? I never sold myself. I'm a good girl. I'm a proper girl. She made me do it. She made Betty do it. When it becomes evident to them that they are caught and that they may be punished for what they have done, they become terribly fearful. They begin to lie. I want to open myself. I want the light of God. I want the sweet love of Jesus. I dance for the devil. I saw him. I wrote in his book. I go back to Jesus. I kiss his hand. I saw Sarah Good with the devil. I saw Goody Osborne with the devil. I saw Bridget Bishop with the devil. I saw George Jacobs with the devil. I saw Goody Howe with the devil. She speaks. She speaks. Glory to God. It is broken. They are free. I saw Martha Bellows with the devil. I saw Goody Sibber with the devil. All hell breaks loose. Once the floodgates are open, there's no turning back. I saw Alice Burrow with the devil. Let the marshal bring irons. I saw Goody Hawkins with the devil. I saw Goody Bibber with the devil. I saw Goody Booth with the devil. In 17th century Salem, Arthur Miller believed he'd found the perfect metaphor for the witch hunts of the McCarthy era. In both, reason gave way to hysteria, and all moral weight was ceded to the accuser. And I saw Justin Trudeau in blackface. (laughs) This guy's talking to... It's it's that uh, little Dutch phrase, right? He's, He's bitching about McCarthy, but give me a break. You're talking about Russia. Soviet Union, that's all people did was rattle on each other, tattle on each other. You go, oh yeah, this guy. Oh, he's a. Oh yeah, he's a, he's anti-communist. He said some terrible stuff about Stalin. Oh, psh, gone. Oh, now you can you know take his shit. And there's 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 all kinds of shit like that going on. It goes down to social credit. Oh, I see you've ratted on five people. You're definitely a uh, a soldier of Stalin, comrade. Yeah, it's great. This is all Mickey Mouse shit, man. Fucking house of mouse, baby. 
well, house of mouse baby <laughs> um this is just a quick little call out to uh to the mofax episode this one's super short when i was about 19 i was a hard line new atheist i read richard dawkins the god delusion multiple times so the next series eclipse is i've called i've titled this this series witch marks and i believe the video was uh the fuck was this guy's name i don't know i lost it but it's like witchcraft gender and marxism i believe is the title and i don't want uh, to assume but <laughs> i i think that might give off some pre con not connotations there's a better word for that but you're letting off a little steam before yeah. you unleash this hot soup I'd heard of the European witch hunts, but I kind of wrote them off. A long time ago, a lot of people were dumb and stupid, and they believed in magic, and they thought women were bringing bad luck on the village or something, so they burned a lot of them, but then everybody realized there's no such thing as magic, and they stopped, and nowadays, it's basically fine. And for this stunningly comprehensive analysis, I was named Male Historian of the Year. But the actual history and philosophy of the witch hunts is far more fascinating and disturbingly relevant today. For a period of roughly 300 years from the 15th century until 1730, an unknown number of women were executed for witchcraft. I say unknown because that's the first problem. We don't know how many were killed. Often records just weren't kept. And it's tough to account for things like women not being executed, but driven out of their homes and dying later, or dying as a result of the social changes that the witch hunts helped usher in. Most of the estimates I've read are somewhere around the 60,000 to 100,000 mark. But for our philosophical purposes, the answer to the question, how many people died, is enough to change how we think about gender and economics ever since. In her book, Caliban and the Witch, philosopher Silvia Federici argues that the witch hunts played a huge role in shaping the world today that for a long time we've ignored especially those of us who are politically left-wing, particularly Marxists, have ignored it. So, at the risk of attracting the wrong kind of internet audience, i got to say, Karl Marx was not 100% right about everything. Was he 99% right? 98? So so 2,999 of those pages were good, and then only one page was bad? Yeah. I doubt it. Man... The worst page was his last page because our journey came to a close. Man, it was such a great thing. Right up until the end. Ending sucked. <laughs> God. Um, so one of the articles that really jump-started this whole fucking um, can of worms was... I, I've had it for a while now. I've actually... <clears throat> I've been sitting on this for a couple of months now. But one of them, uh, sorry, the name of it was What Lenin Teaches Us About Witchcraft. And I'm I'm looking now and I did forget something, but this article starts off with a quote by the Ramones. Oh, I believe in miracles. Oh, I believe in a better, better world for me and you. We should go check out the <laughs> Ramones anti-communist picture. It's pretty funny. <laughs> oh, the Ramones were the, the greatest. They had so much anti-commie shit. Uh, what, what's the song? Uh E.T. Foe on the way to Urbana. I used to make a living by a banana. It's the Commando Rock or something like that. Talking about uh, Banana Republics. Oh, it's great. Ramones were so on the fucking level. I love that. I love that band. I uh, uh, I want to check that one out. Post show. If you can, uh, the, the greatest, maybe the greatest live album ever is their 
77, It's Alive, New Year's Eve in London. It's, I think it's 77, maybe it's 78. It's so good. <laughs> it's like, it's it's dummy good. Uh, <laughs> not not to detract, but, but I just had to proclaim my love for, for the Ramones. Um, anyway, I loved it. By the way, she mentioned the book, she wrote the book Caliban and the Witch. That's that's another great theater reference there. A little Shakespeare for your for your dome talking about um, heathens and pagans in an extremely colonial time, uh, turn of the seventeenth century England. It's the sort of uh, col- um, oh, what's that? Oh, colonial, colonial, colonius. What is Caliban? Central character in Caliban is a he's a kind of a side character. He's a, actually he's a pretty big character. Oh, he's in, in the um, Tempest. The Tempest. And he's like the local, but behind the tempest, the idea is that uh, Prospero, who's the who's like you know from some imperial land, he's he's a wizard or whatever. He goes to this desert island, and Caliban is like one of the locals, and he's this half frog man. And uh, Caliban is like the classic representation in Shakespearean literature. He represents the heathen, the pagan, the the unwashed uh, island dwelling, you know, native. And uh, and there's there's a lot of imagery in that of him, you know, trying to get with the the fair white daughter and all this stuff, and you know, and then the witch. I could be anybody. There's a lot of witches. The main witches in in Shakespeare are the ones in Macbeth. But there's oh, the, there's the, the trio. Yeah, but other than them, there's other witches. You know, I'm looking at uh, the Merriam-Webster definition of uh, Caliban, uh-huh. and it says, they're going to have to update this, a savage and deformed slave in Shakespeare's The Tempest. They yeah. should change it to a deformed, enslaved savage. Ens- enslaved individual savage. <laughs> <laughs> Temporarily experiencing <laughs> enslavement. <laughs> experiencing savagery. <laughs> And that's why they're coming because no Biden's a good guy. <laughs> um, You're gonna call it Marion Webster dog, and I swear to God they would do it. They'd be like, apparently, oh apparently anybody can change those fucking definitions. I might as well do that shit myself. You know, speaking of Lord of the Rings, that was one of Tolkien's big, big accolades that he bragged about was that he, you know, was one of the the guys working on the original <laughs> Merriam Webster or the Oxford. The Oxford English Dictionary, or whatever. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, so the the reason I had pulled up the the Lennon article, uh, it starts off with uh, there's a claim that someone in the line of Lennon, perhaps the leader's great grandmother, was defamed for using black magic and witchcraft and was burned at the stake by the Inquisition. So let's just let's assume that mythology is true and that this happened to Lennon's great grandma. Uh, it, it certainly sort of sets the tone for Lennon experience in his own attack on the patriarchy to try and, I, I guess, in the eyes of a Marxist, um, and, which I'm not. So I'm just going to do a terrible quote or basic rundown. They are tearing down the patriarchy from the top of the pyramid down to the bottom, inverting it like a fucking wizard. There was uh, also like levitation. Well, OK, so. <laughs> Have you ever heard about the 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 gag that someone someone convinced uh, parts of the Russian population that Lenin's body because they preserved it right and they put it in this tomb for people to come and check it out? Yeah, and it's still in great condition to this day. Well, they they had convinced people that his body had transformed into a fucking mushroom. 
Hmm. And it's this, it's this piece on like uh, fake news and hoaxes. Uh, the whole thing that I had found was in Russia, Rush, Russian. Um, so I can't really, you know, play anything from it, but it's, it's pretty weird. <laughs> that is, yeah, but it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just believe, anyone will believe anything on TV, in the news, whatever. Yep. Uh, so the article also references uh, Caliban, Caliban, Caliban and the Witch mm-hmm. uh, by, by Sylvia Federici, Federici. Um, it's, uh, this quote is as the embodiment of a world of female subjects that capitalism had to destroy the heretic, the healer, the disobedient wife, the woman who dared to live alone and obey a woman who poisoned the master's food and inspired the slaves to revolt. Mm-hmm. So it's just this constant attack. Like, okay. So let's imagine for a second that you've got this religious sun God, the, the West Civ. They're demonizing this sort of divine feminine and the mother, the healer, like this, this quote just made, you, you got all these witch, uh, witch hunts and the trials and, and this idea of fake news using it to attack. Um, I guess it's, see, this is, uh, this is where it all just, I, I know what the concepts are and I understand them in my head, but it's just, it's convoluted to a degree because it's, on one hand, this idea of a patriarchy ex- exploiting these these sort of conditions of attacking the Mother Earth or attacking the Divine Feminine, I feel like that is happening and that is like one of the control schemes. But in mm-hmm. response, the the quote unquote counterculture, the 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 thing that's supposed to save you is just an inversion of the same tactics. Yeah, whoever can out-exploit who. And that, I think that's kind of the problem that I've been having as far as like coming at this with a, with a clear head and clear intentions of what are we trying to understand here. You've got this, you've got the conscious son, you've got the subconscious son, you've got the... Well, I like your idea of, of patriarchal patriarchal energy. And if you're going to think of a natural... Uh, if we're fighting the patriarchy, what would fight a patriarchy? It would be a feminine energy, right? No, if it's another. Talking... It's another patriarchy. Hmm. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that sure. they. So you got Saturn and Kronos, and they they attach this symbology to Saturn that it, that makes him satanic, which we're going to touch on here. I mean, we're kind of warming up the waters. I'm not saying by any means that. Witchcraft is like just browbeaten, satanic, uh, you're all going to hell. Um, I think it's just another religious sort of practice. And For me, it's a lot of the time a costume that these people wear just to have fun and, and take part in something that they think is greater than themselves personally. But, you know, who knows? There is... Um, I, well, let me uh, let me play the next clip here. I want to look for a quote because I, I got something I can counter uh, counter that with you on. No. When we talk about the transition from feudalism to capitalism, it sounds like a very smooth and civil process, but actually it was an incredibly bloody trip. In Europe, the Black Death killed about one in three people, and those at the bottom of society who survived suddenly found that they were pretty indispensable and could start making demands of the people at the top. And so feudalism started to crack. There was a lot of resistance to both it and the early nascent forms of capitalism that were slouching towards Europe to be born. And a lot of these early anti-feudal and anti-capitalist resistance movements were led by women. Meanwhile, in the colonies, 
Indigenous resistance to European invasion, like the Taki Onkoy movement in Peru, offered prominent roles to rebellious women as well. It's maybe tempting to think that these struggles could never have succeeded because they were too primitive or basically because the poors were too stupid. But a lot of these early anti-feudal and anti-capitalist resistance movements were pretty philosophically sophisticated, like the diggers in England, for instance. And they were succeeding fine until they were brutalized. There might be an interesting parallel there to how we talk about some anti-capitalist countries today. In addition to wielding increasing amounts of disruptive <laughs> political power, though, women in medieval Europe already held a lot of social power. And that's because of... Oh, such a cliffhanger. Well, the on the video, it, 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 it shows a, a splash page of magic as it goes in the chapter two. Um, yeah, I'm still looking for this quote. It'll come to me. It'll be good, I swear. Uh, here's, <laughs> here's part four of this dude. There are still many people today who believe in Wicca or paganism, and ritual magic can be an important part of that spiritual practice. But undeniably, belief in magic used to be a lot more widespread than it is now. And magic was an arena in which women dominated. If you had a problem, you would go and see a wise woman. If you wanted her to cure your toothache, or tell you your future, or talk to the dead for you, you would seek out a witch. She would know about herbs and healing. And not all of it was nonsense. Some of it was just pre-scientific medicine. She might also be the village midwife, for instance. Someone who believes in magic will behave differently from someone who doesn't. If you want to use the postmodern jargon, magical thinking is a technology of the self, as Foucault might put it. It creates a certain kind of person. If you'd rather explain it in terms of behavior than power creating selves, I won't hold it against you because, at the risk of attracting the wrong kind of internet audience, in fairness, postmodernists aren't always 100% right about everything. He does this gag where Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson call him up on the cell phone. <laughs> Uh, like a deep fake? No, no, no deep fake. Uh, although I did miss an interesting conversation about deep fakes in the chats earlier, so I'm going to go back and check that one out. <laughs> that was, I guess, uh, Sir Gene deep faked Adam on his show or something. Oh, uh, okay. Sir Gene's a, an interesting character. Mm. Uh, well, but anyway. Um, so Lennon, speaking on uh, you know all these I guys. I love that image, by the way, if you don't mind me interrupting one more time. The, the, the image of the... The lady in the forest who with with the the herbalist lady, you know, they, they always call her a witch, like she's this old bat. But I don't ever think of her as like a, a witch. I always think that she's just like you know a a, a normal aged lady just hanging out. She's got a beautiful little cottage and she's like growing stuff and having a great time. And well, loves her, see, her little this is this is the trifecta, and we're we're gonna touch on this because this is this is what I'm what I'm building to that. There's this battle between two different types of patriarchy. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I know that a lot of folks will try and say that, uh, they'll, how do I put this without sounding like a jackass, that they try and just, uh, carpet bash feminism and communism and, and just through and through though, it, it's still like a patriarchal power where you're just using fucking violence and the removal of resources from people. I mean, mm -hmm. strong arming. Yeah. And like, yeah. look at fucking Pfizer. Like, <laughs> is that something a capitalist do? Or would, is that something a fucking communist would do? I mean, either way, well, they, their fucking vaccines are going to be implemented 
into i mean i'm i'm fully on board with the idea that it's going to be fucking freedom papers please i'm there mm. let's uh i uh, wouldn't be surprised i've always said communism is just state corporatism it's communism is not that far from capitalism in the sense that they they both have the same problem just like all economic systems have the same problem which is accumulation in the end even in a vacuum if everybody has the same you know advantages and starting point and everything's even stevens in the in the beginning eventually over time someone will acquiesce the majority of wealth somebody will through luck and hard work and 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 ruthlessness become the big dog in the field and the the way that you can easily explain that is through the game monopoly itself which is designed to show you that exact concept and with communism what you do is instead of hashing it out and and you know over time seeing who ultimately becomes that top dog everybody just agrees that there's one guy who's the winner and everybody hands over their shit to that one guy and the game's over and that's what communism really is it's it's not a a rejection of the system. If anything, it's an expedition of it, and uh, or an expediation of it. Whatever, whatever word I'm trying. They're expediting the process of of capitalism, and they just say, okay, the government is the one corporation, and uh, and they win, and we all are just <laughs> going to buy whatever they're selling. Uh, yeah, that, it's, it's in practice is what happens. I uh, I don't know. I, this guy kind of drones on and on. Um, I think I might just skip on to the money shot. <laughs> Yeah, this. give us the money shot. Because uh, I couldn't I couldn't quite figure out if he was excited about this or not. And I think one of the best ways of seeing this is to compare the witch hunts to another famous set of mass killings. And here I'm actually quite excited because I don't know if anyone's actually made this comparison before. There are a lot of parallels between the witch hunts and the lynching of black Americans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, like... I can understand the parallel, but to get excited, I, I guess, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I just said that, that stuck out to me. Yeah. That, that reeked of the, the Jordan B. Peterson, Neo, um, uh, what is it called? The Neo modernist. What does what he call him? The uh, po- postmodern postmodernist. He says the postmodernist, everything's about power to the postmodernist. That's his basic thesis. Everything in life is a, is a power struggle. And, uh, you can compare the lynchings of, of black people to to the 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 burning of witches at the stake or people accused of being a witch is it's about power it's about somebody who's trying to force someone else into you know suffering because they are trying to feel powerful it's pathetic it's it comes from an insecurity it comes from a weakness in humankind uh well i mean i don't think uh i don't think there's any other entity that people could try and draw more power from to just go on some crazy hell raising bender of a hellacious time. Um, but but I found, uh, this is this, we're finally to our uh, Catholic gentleman. Um, we can go through these as quick as you want. I got six of them. Uh, but he highlights some of, uh, Marx's poetry and we'll get into what happens Um, What sort of rituals take place when communism gets installed? In fact, Marx in one of his plays, one of his really chilling, sick, kind of scary plays, has this devil character, his demon character, who's like sawing on this violin. He He dons this holy robe of Christ and this kind of mockery of Christ. 
Another poem that Marx wrote that I lead off in the front of the book with from 1841, he's, he says, see this sword, this blood-dark sword, which stabs unerringly within thy soul. Uh, see this sword, the prince of darkness sold it to me. It, it's it's that kind of thing that that pervades Marx's poetry, his writing. He's writing about pale maidens who who commit suicide, some of them in suicide packs. And a lot of this, this is a reflection of Marx's own personal life, including including his, his really wretched family life. This is an amazing fact. I, I mean, name for me, anybody listening, another individual that you could think of historically that this applies to. Marx lost two daughters to suicide in suicide packs with their husbands. That was some fucked up shit that I did not know until today or yesterday when I. That's terrible. Yeah. He probably just grew up at the gnarliest time. Germany is such a a, a horrific country <laughs> as far as. You, have you ever seen the Spring Awakening? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, Spring Awakening, for anyone who's not familiar with it, go Google it. I'm not going to get it explain it all but it's it's you know it takes place kind of in like post uh imperial german right before the rise of hitler not right before the rise but like a generation or two before hitler and it's just like how intense german society is how strict it is how brutal it is on children on women on men and uh that whole play basically is just about these kids going absolutely insane because they just are beaten all day long at at school at home and you know their whole life is nothing but just pure indoctrination and it it must not have been fun being a german at that time and they're just so weird they're driven insanity suicide packs come on both of them like was there was there some sort of cult what's going on well, <laughs> I think that's that's uh, yet to be determined on whether or not this shit's a cult. I'm of the mindset, yeah, but let's. Uh, this is part two. The other son who did go through with a suicide pact with Marx's daughter, his name was Paul Lafargue, and he was he had very low self esteem, and part of that is attributable to the way his father in law treated him. Paul was partly Cuban, so to Karl Marx, that meant that he was partly Negro. In fact, Marx and Engels, they tried to deduce with scientific accuracy how much Negro blood is in Paul. One-eighth, one-twelfth. Marx referred to Paul as Negrillo or the gorilla because because he contained this, he had had this Cuban blood. And this is something that I hit in this book. Marx and Engels were both racists. They were bigots. And Marx was very anti-Semitic. I mean, some of the statements from Marx, quote, the Israelite faith is repulsive to me, right? What is the worldly God of the Jew? Money, haggling, right? uh, Marx writes some amazingly anti-Semitic stuff. Oh, yeah. Of course, it has to go to the anti-Semitism. He opens up with talking about how racist he is against like black people. And then it says one sentence about it. And then all of a sudden it's oh, anti-Semitism. I mean, the, uh, there's the, I forget which episode it was of Mo facts, but they, they get into the writings where he's dropping some pretty nasty bombs on them. I mean, he, if there was anybody that I was going to say, yeah, he probably just hated anybody that wasn't him. It's, he's well, Germans are intensely there. racist, intensely racist. And, Austria uh, and Belgium. I mean, those are the people that really fucked up Africa and the Congo, you know. Yeah. Between and, them and France, they fucked an entire continent. 
And, you know, there's another article here. Um, it's just listed way down at the bottom, but it's uh, talking about Ingalls fucking trust fund baby status. Oh, yeah. And everybody says Ingalls is the real brains behind Marx. Marx is just a, a scribe. Yeah. Uh, well, this is part three. The, he was a rich uh, boy. So, Sorry about that, but he was. you said Ingalls was a uh, rich boy? His daddy was a rich boy. Was a rich girl. Okay, cool. Just. <laughs> The uh, so why why did I write this point one here in my little outline? I've always been interested in the faith of Marx, uh, you know, Marx and religion, Marx's rejection of God, what Marx believed, his faith. I wasn't going to call his book that um, God and Karl Marx, and I've I've always known about Marx's fascination with the devil. Now to that end, point two: What's my thesis? Well, it's not this. I have not found any evidence that Karl Marx was possessed, that he was a Satanist, right? And I always tell people, and, and young people in particular that are watching this, you never want to overstate things with your research, but also you don't want to understand. And I've seen many times where, where people will say, well, you don't have proof here that the guy was a Satan worshiper. Just, just forget this. You know? <laughs> well, it, I mean, you don't have to have the whole enchilada here. All right? you, 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 you look at the guy's poetry and other stuff and, and things the guy wrote. It's pretty, it's, it's a, this is a very disturbing portrait. All right? I mean, the guy doesn't have to be you know, at full demonic possession or anything right but but you know the, the, there's this is pretty this is pretty dark there's some very very shady stuff going on here i do quote some people who think that maybe marx was possessed and one of them robert payne a british man of letters a british professor of um, he was a translator he uh, read plays a playwright himself i believe very thoughtful um, individual, and he wrote two outstanding biographies of Marx. In fact, I think he wrote more than two, but one was published by Simon and Schuster in 1968. I still think it's the best biography of Marx. Another by NYU Press. That was a few years later, and in the 1968 Simon and Schuster book, he has a chapter called, called "The Demons," where where he says in there that that he believes that Marx might well have been possessed. Let me see if I can get the exact quote here from you. Uh, well, he certainly seemed like he was possessed. He, re- he wrote like he was possessed. That guy wrote so much shit. I guess to play devil's advocate here, is there any yeah. difference between him and, and uh, I guess, Slayer? You know, or finding some something deeper, some, you know, uh, who's another one? Venom? Venom, the black metal band? Just from, what, writing a bunch of, just having a huge body of work? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, <laughs> I, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I guess with the calling upon the imagery where Marx has this blood red sword and he's writing like a man possessed. Uh, oh, I see. Like he's got the, he's an actual demon and his room's filled with candles and uh, chains. I see what you're saying. Well, yeah, he, uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to get to this guy. Uh, yeah, Because I don't want to misrepresent this. Here it is. This is an exact quote from, from Payne. The Demons. 19, that's the 1960, the name of the chapter in his 1968 biography. Quote, there were times when Marx seemed to be possessed by demons. Marx had the devil's view of the world, and he had the devil's malignity. Sometimes he seemed to know that he was accomplishing works of evil. So that's Payne. Payne, Payne actually writes that. 
Now, another who says this is actually who goes even further is the Rev- is the late Reverend Richard Wormbron, who wrote uh, the book Tortured for Christ, and he had been he had been tortured in communist prisons in Romania, and he said he was tortured by by men who literally literally chanted, "I am the devil, I am the devil." And Warren Braun even said to one of his captors at one point, he's like, why are you doing this? Why are you so vicious? Why are you so cruel? And and the communist cap, uh, captor or, or his prison guard said to him, I've lived, I've lived all my life for this moment when I can express all the evil in my heart against you. And Mark and Warren Braun said, he said that I had people torturing me who, who shouted, I am the devil. He said, all the scenes in Dante's Inferno cannot begin to compare to the hell of what life was like in communist prison camps and what they did to religious prisoners. I do have a, mm-hmm. a short account of some of the stuff. It's fairly graphic. It's short. Um, as it is so late now, I think we will skip it. If uh, if y'all want to check it out for next time, or unless you have an objection and want to hear it now, I think we'll we'll skip on that one. Yeah, sure. I'm gonna need to read the graphic mutilations right now. Yeah. Um. Uh, well, it, it seems, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, let me. Uh, why don't you go ahead and finish what you're saying? It'll give me a second to collect my thoughts here. Sure. Um, the the devil connection with Marx to me is just one one point I want to make is his worship of man as opposed to a god. Marx, the ideals of Marx, or at least what we have distilled and how we talk about it today, he thought religion was an illusion, thought God was a sham, and that there was no divine power. That you know we really, at least a conscious divine power. And instead, he decides to worship man. Instead, he decides that human labor is, you know, divine. And um, the collaboration of man for a common goal is as a divine a thing as, as anything that could be conjured. And that man or woman or, or just, you know, people are themselves gods of their own fates and of their own world. And if we all were to realize this and join together and, you know, brotherhood, sisterhood, that we would, you know, be able to accomplish anything, which unfortunately, that's not how humankind works. We would love for that to be how it works, but it just isn't. And um, that ties into Saturn worship and all that because the all the occultism, it all boils down to worship of the material world, worship of of your own life and what you can control and you know there there are rules and you got to follow them and that uh and and with these elites who, who worship saturn what they do is they worship themselves and they they go around and they do whatever they want because that's the whole idea there's no there's nobody watching them they're not going to go to hell for doing whatever they do you know they're just going to die <laughs> which is just a morbidly pragmatic and, and nihilistic way of viewing the world which you know could be true could not be true but that to me, I think is the general premise, and I think Marxism ties into that very, very much. It is a it is a worship of the pragmatic, just in the way that ancient Roman culture, with all their pantheon of gods, they didn't worship those gods. What they worshipped was urbanization. That was their god. Everywhere they went, they built the most incredible cities. And that was how they flexed all throughout the world. When they took Britain, they went over there and they turned London into a fucking city of marble overnight. And uh, what what that is, is just a worship of a certain kind of efficiency, a certain kind of pragmatism that's inherent in the human condition. And Marxism, in its own way, tries to capture that. Fuels itself off of that shit. Yeah. 
Okay. I I think I know how we can close this out. Um okay. one one last uh little magic toss out to Marx. Are you familiar with his commodity fetish fetishism? Fetishism. Commodity fetishism. No, enlighten me. Uh fetish was properly was prop, prop popularly used in the good old days of colonialism. It is used to describe inanimate objects that possess fantastical powers in indigenous cultures. His interpretation of a commodity that is a commodity exi- uh, excuse me is that a commodity exists in a dual state, physical and every way tangible, and two holds together social and material relations claim that a commodity has a peculiar nature and that it possesses a mysterious ability to create or renew social rea- uh, relations being both an ordinary physical object and a generator of social relations. I looked up the definition of fetish material object regarded with awe as having mysterious powers or being the re- representative of a deity that may be worshiped through it, which well, what's then the commodity what's the, the product. Well, just you know, the product. Yeah, just what, a, what gets sold. And askew. Then, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, secret is hidden under the apparent movements in the re- relative values of commodities. That is labor. It is precisely finished in the form of the world of commodities. The money form, which conceals the character and hardship of private labor and social relations between the workforce by making these relations appear plainly just as material objects, like manifesting. Speaking of which, have you ever wanted to manifest a socialist dominatrix? Uh, yeah. Why do you... Oh, oh, yeah, I guess that ties in. But yeah, I have. <laughs> she, uh, this is Reba Mayberry. Mayberry? Oh my God. That kind of sounds oh. like Blueberry. No, no relation, perhaps? Maybe a relation? I'm not sure, but, uh, it's, uh, this mistress... She's a political science lecturer, and she will only dominate white men, preferably those with right-wing views. She's a socialist of mixed race, admitted she could never be mean to someone who wasn't white because the world is run by white men. Instead of using whips and clamps, she relies on words and mind games to degrade her male clients, and her work stems from the frustration with men who indulge in fetishes that have no alignment with their everyday politics. Um, And this is like, this is about as tabloid as it gets. I should have just went with uh, no name. Maybe I'll cut it out. It's yeah. I feel weird now, but uh, mm. <laughs> super. Is she a literal dominatrix? Maybe it's a dumb question. I it's I don't think it's of the tradition. I mean, I I don't want to assume. I don't think it's of the traditional um, bondage. Not the traditional way, but she does meet with guys and humiliate them professionally for money. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah yeah I mean there's just just checking it's, just, it's not like a metaphor that's what she does <laughs> um like you know like everything else that article's in there you can check it out it's Daily Mail so it's very tabloidy yeah. but I, hey, I just thought that was I've a known fun... some sex workers in my time you know they make a great living doing some non-sexual stuff uh, you make more doing sexual stuff but you can make a lot doing non-sexual stuff too yeah from what I understand. Uh, if you remember from the beginning with our buddy Wrath, um, do you remember the name of the dude that he was talking about? Did it stay with you after all this time? Uh, the name of the dude that he was talking about. Uh, I could just only think of his white face. Well, his piercings. His 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 uh his name was Morg, and here's his cult. 
Hyperionism will create a new humanity and a new earth. It's a new way of thinking, a new spirituality, a new science, a new morality. It's the grand unified theory of everything, all based on logic and reason. Hyperionism gives you the tools to access the infinite depths of the universe within your mind. We reject faith and blind belief. To hell with old morality. We embrace our shadow and explore our deepest desires. It's only through unifying your shadow and light that you will become whole. Shadow it's time to evolve into the true you. Step into your power, transform your life, and transform the world. We are a global movement that will eradicate sexism, racism, homophobia, and all that obstructs the path to unity. We are everything new. We are that which has never been seen before. The old ways are dead. Become a part of new humanity. Become a part of the new world. Join our movement and become Hyperion. You think God is in control here? <laughs> Wait a minute. You tricked me, Booberry. You you just tricked me just now. You were playing more My Little Pony, weren't you? No way. That was a My Little Pony clip, wasn't it? Nope. Because <laughs> that's the type of shit I would expect to hear on My Little Pony. But okay, okay. I'll, I'll go with you on this. I just I thought it was interesting because there's so much of what he was talking about in here that maybe we didn't touch on all of it, but he kind of sounds like he's running a little bit of his own Saturn cult. Uh, yeah, sounds a little Gnostic to me. Light and shade make you whole. Yeah, you well, think? I uh, yeah, and I think where I am right now is at least we can acknowledge there is the right-hand son and the left-hand son, but there's still that demonization of Satan and the divine feminine by whatever the dominant West Civ patriarchy is. So what is this What is this dragon? What is this other knowledge? Is it something that's separate from Saturn? And I, well, I think I've oh, got, okay. I think, oh, sorry, you, you go and then I'll play the, I'll play this. Uh, oh, I was going to say it might be the bees. You know, the bees have a matriarchal society and their, their society is one of creation. Yeah. Right? And it's order. I mean, just look at the way honeycombs are shaped. Yeah. It, with the a hexagon, by the way, yeah. I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's an energy. How do the bees communicate? How do they know? What to do and, and how to coexist and, and what their roles are. What is that energy? How do you tap into that? Um, well, <laughs> I think uh, I think what we're going to have to pay attention to next week is what is the connection of Saturn and Lucifer? Or are these two different ent- entities? He's now the light bringer. So he brings the light from the dangerous Dungeness dragons mm-hmm. through the bowels because the, the light is in your testicles. Right. You ever notice when a baby is born? The sexual energy? Listen closely. Just okay. listen. You ever notice when a baby is born that their genitals are very dark? Right. The boy's n- nuts are very dark. So the heavy melanin it's has fallen. Yeah. Is falling here. And the consciousness raises it back up, the energy back up to the seat of the soul. And the illuminated is Satan or Saturn. Saturn is Satan. Kronos is the way home mm-hmm. through the gateway. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Satan represents what? Saturn represents what? Death, yeah. the bones. Saturday is Baron Zombie's day because he's a representation of, 
of a gateway to the ancestors, right. which is represented as the illuminated pineal with the eye, of, with the all-seeing eye of Horus. Let that eye be true. Let that eye be one. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about that image I just showed you, where Dr. Africa showed you the actual brain of a motherfucker whose pineal was awake and the eye of Horus sitting all over thing, all over things. See, white people say that Saturn is the actual real sun, but they're talking about, yeah, well, what do you think oh. that is? Saturn is the real sun because you've seen a representation of it in your mind. There's no Saturn up there. It's up here. You're saying it. I'm saying this is you, niggas, disguised in evil. This shit blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, he introduced the idea of the chakra. Yeah, it's, it's great. But uh, I guess like to tie in the, the physical quote unquote evil form is the uh, it's Satan or Saturn in your third eye. I mean, I think it was the idea that it's your root chakra. It's the basis of all of the energies and it's the foundation. And then the sun is the crown chakra, the uh, corona. That's oh. the, the the third eye is, I don't think that's the third eye. I think the crown chakra is above the body. Yeah, that would or be what, seven? That would be seven, yeah. Well, and no, because then, no, then your third eye is the sixth chakra. Correct. Planet Saturn is the sixth planet from the sun, third from the last. Well, there's that too. You could you could do it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I don't see, I mean, I guess other than Saturn, what else would be the third eye? Well, this is this is what I'm curious about. The same way you are the greatest entity that walked to, on this planet, but they got you as the worst motherfucker, uh, R. Kelly predator every day. Right. They got the black woman as the worst ignorant beast. She's disguised in evil. Mm -hmm. But she's really the motherfucking light brain. Mm -hmm. Y'all niggas better catch the fuck up, nigga. I'm telling you basics. I'm not even getting Baphomet. <laughs> and you're getting him and shit. What's the next one? Read. <clears throat> in the movie Lord of the Rings, back in 01, the story is about rising up of the all-seeing all eye. The all-seeing eye, or third eye, is just another name for the pineal gland, and the planet Saturn is also called Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. um, the comedic deity set is the temple for Lucifer, Satan, or Saturn. Let's pause. Yeah. And I think we'll explore some Lucifer next week and figure out. Because I'm of the mindset that maybe Lucifer is the root sun, root sun, and not so much Saturn. Maybe Saturn is actually the, it's, I don't know. It's weird. Um, we're on the lead. We're on the hunt. Lucifer is in the the character, the the, the literary character, the referenced uh, individual in the scriptures, or as something else. Uh, I'm wondering if Lucifer isn't actually another archon who was of a, a female lineage, mm. and is Lucifer the actual divine feminine? Mm. And the deception comes from whatever this sort of ego-driven, conscious, West Civ son demonizing that, the uh, Lucifer, with the imagery of death that is Saturn and Satan. And, um, you know, maybe it was the golden and age. Saturn's really the, the divine energy, the, and we're being deceived. And and something else is even more base is at the cause of this. And please, folks, don't take this as uh, legal or financial advice. 
<laughs> yes, uh, all our stock picks will be posted on the website. Uh, we are not liable for any losses. It's not financial advice. <laughs> um, well, do you got any got any closing thoughts, or we'll uh, wrap this mother up? Uh, parting thoughts is uh, Saturn is is fucking weird, and yeah, I think uh, that those rings, you know, you gotta watch out for them. Yeah, I love I loved how it came full circle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the hero's journey is now complete. We are what is that started. one? Shit, I did the thing. <laughs> oh my god, you okay? Podcaster down. <laughs> I bumped my. <laughs> I got a touchpad for my jingle board. <laughs> so you got struck by lightning or something? <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I have a, I have an appropriate, appropriate closing song what was this one? Oh, satan in the white house we're closing out we're done for good i think uh, i think we'll i think we'll wrap this episode up i think all uh, right i think i've talked about all we can on it it's getting late we're 320 right now so 320 baby hey that's not bad for i broke the rule a little bit we ended up with 69 clips instead of 50 <laughs> 69 dudes that's Trimming what I'm down. talking about and we got some for next time uh, but yeah next week same time same place come check us out behindtheschemes.com slash scaly show you can listen at 9.30 central p.m. or 7.30 specific time or 10.30 eastern we take place at all time zones that's correct. We are global, baby. Thank you for everyone that hung out in the chats listening with us tonight. And uh, if we don't touch on Lucifer next week, because I, I don't think he'll be able to join us, I'll, I'll find some maybe catch up in, catch up on new stuff. But uh, don't expect this story to go away anytime soon. Nope. It never goes away. It never has. It never will. Thanks for listening. I've been Booberry Mothman of the Miniocalypse. Hello, and uh, my name is Lavish. Job bless. Good night, everybody.